0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host... Patty
1: Daly. Well, all right, and thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, September the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's producing this. Come on with an edition. So, we're looking forward to speak with you this morning. Of course we are. Topic up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709 273 Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86-26. So, you know we've been tracking Canada's progress at the FIBA World Cup of Basketball, it's over. Lost in the semifinal this morning to Serbia ninety-five to eighty-six. Serbia is big on basketball, to say the very least. You know that they are partying in the streets of Belgrade and right across that country this morning. Good run for Canada. the Best team we've ever put on the court, I would suggest. And now the Serbs will get to face the winner of Germany versus the USA. Interestingly, when the USA hosted the FIBA World Cup of Basketball some years ago in Indianapolis, the Serbs actually beat the Americans on their home turf to win the World Cup. So we'll see how that plays out. And of course, the Serbians trying to stay coherent enough to watch the US Open tonight because they are Superstar Novak Djokovic is in the semifinals against the remaining American, Ben Shelton. Uh, Amazing tennis last night on the women's side. Anyway... Also, big rugby fan community here in this province. The World Cup of Rugby kicks off in France tonight. And a real Mac- uh, clash of the titans here tonight. Host France play New Zealand. That's world number three versus world number four. Most rugby fans in the province are probably cheering for Ireland or England. Ireland kick off their World Cup campaign tomorrow versus Romania. And the English take on Argentina. It takes about six weeks to play the World Cup. It runs all the way till October the 28th. But I'll be watching faux show. A couple of quick sports notes. Everyone appreciates the versatility of an athlete. And I've seen this stat before, and it always amazes me. On this date in 1965, Kansas City A's Burt Campanaris played all nine positions in the one game. All nine positions in one game, so that's pretty cool. And mention the U.S. Open on the state in 1968. The first Open era victory, Arthur Ashe won the US Open title, and of course the Arthur Ashe Stadium is their largest uh, court at Flushing Meadows, so Arthur Ashe the title in 68. Okay, let's keep going. So and on the sports note, someone asked me to see if we can invigorate some more conversation and maybe put the issue in the ears of the government to try to justify exactly what's going on with the sugar tax. So the pushback was immediate as soon as it was announced. We understand governments want for uh, the population to be healthier. And yes, there's an issue and concern in many people in their diet with the consumption of sugar and other things, the fats and the, the like, uh, salt. But, you know, the problem with this, and everyone knows the same issue here, is yes, bringing in $11 million in revenue, and yes, that's 22% more than anticipated, but no, we have no earthly idea if it changed anything about people's behavior and their decisions. Okay. If they forecast a 22% less in revenue, it kind of says to me, you know, based on their looking at sales data, I would assume it's they came up with that $9 million. So we don't have the numbers released to coincide with the $11 million in revenue. But when it's more than anticipated, you got to think it didn't change anything. It just meant more money for the government. And yes, physical tax credits and uh, nutrition, prenatal nutrition programs, and school lunch and breakfast programs, all important, no question. And they all need to be funded adequately, no problem there. But someone wanted me to put it back out there, so there you go. You want to take it on? All right, this one here is absolutely infuriating and in some form hits home. The family's been around the sport of volleyball for a long time. Jack was a top flight player. And I know this person just kind of know him to see him, and he's been involved in camps and games where my son has been a player, and now he's been charged with sexual assault. So his name is Marcus Hicks. He's thirty-two years old. He was arrested out of his home in Paradise. Was made an appearance in court yesterday, and it is madness. He's also a substitute teacher. So you know the story is larger than this person and the allegations against him, albeit them f- quite devious, nefarious, evil, the conversation just grows beyond it. So we know that the predators are everywhere. I mean, there's a story in the news today of uh, the RCMP out in Bay Roberts, talk about the fact that someone in a white Ford Econoline van was trying to lure a kid in with offers of ice cream, right? The standard old go-to ploy. But the online world is just so dangerous, and people like Hicks are everywhere if it's proven that what he's charged with is actually true. Now, whether it be conversations about people who got a bad vibe from him and others when they are in school or involved in sports or what have you, and I can't get into that because I really don't know what your experience might have been, and you're welcome to share, although the Roman mill is probably not very helpful. but. If you have been engaged or your child, and it's a tough conversation to have, right? The issue with trusting our children, their want to feel independent, but they also need to be aware that it's just so easy to get sucked in here, poor choice of words, by someone who you don't know the anonymous tag or the handle that they put forward. They could be real. They could be fake. They could be simply trying to engage in conversation, or they could be trying to lure your child to hurt them. So the two handles that this person was allegedly using was Isabella Ricci and there were Corrine Smith. So it's worth it. I had no choice but to engage this conversation in my own home yesterday. It was not only infuriating, but it was all-encompassing. You know, and it's hard to ask your child, do you know this person? I know that we knew this person. I've seen him in the gym countless times. And to speak to my son about, you know, whether or not anything like this had happened or whether or not he is familiar with these handles, whether or not his buddies are talking about it, and of course they were. It was an endless stream of threads of text between them all yesterday, you know, combination of horror, disgust, anger, frustration, and heartbreak. So what do we do here? You know, it's so easy for online to be so dangerous. It's one thing to be shoved around, get the books knocked out of your hand, but the online pile-on of bullying, the online luring, the issues regarding sextortion, and that can happen very innocently. You know, you might share something racy, whether it be in text or in a picture or a video. Next thing you know, it's being held over your head until the next step, the next layer or level of the abuse, which could grow from online to physical contact, sexual assault. So again, this is not about me, but it's about that story and it's about how we put these red flags in the minds of our sons and our daughters because it's out there and everybody but everybody is vulnerable. You can be as strong-willed, as well-read, uh, understanding the worries and the red flags out there, knowing where to turn when and if someone approaches you online in this fashion, but it can happen so quick. It can just be so innocuous, beginning of innocence, and then very soon it becomes dangerous. So, again, maybe I should take a deep breath because this one has really got me going here, and I'm really quite angry about it, but it's bigger than this one person. So, how do we talk about it in school? Because we've got to be open and honest, right? You don't want to be every, at every turn worrying our kids and scaring the wits out of them with talking about the White O'Connor line van or the online predator. But it's better to talk about it, just in my own personal opinion, than it is to try to look for trauma counseling in the aftermath. So there's only one charge been laid. But they are asking folks out there, if you have, you know, in conversation with your own family, your own children, if this has ever, even if you were simply approached online, it's probably worth your while to put that in the ears of the RNC for further investigation. Because you got to believe if he did it once, not only he may have done it more than once, but he certainly tried countless times. Who knows how many times? Dozens, hundreds, thousands, because it's been happening for quite a long time. And so this guy here, who's, you know, one of the nuisances that I deal with online, seeing that we're rushing to judgment, when all I said every single time is, if it's proven to be true and the allegations and on and on and on, but this is another example of, you know, the online pests and the online dangers that are omnipresent out there, if you want to take this uh, story on and we should talk about it in school we absolutely should be talking about it openly and honestly in school sticking with school got an email from a concerned parent about the class size that her daughter is is uh, in this year grade 12 o'donnell high school 40 students They've lost three teachers. The air quality is reported to be stifling. The heat is obvious. They say it's so warm in the classroom that the floors are wet. So 40 kids in one class, you know, the question is whether or not this is actually manageable. How can they be taught and to absorb the curriculum? The short answer is they can't. So if you want to bring what you're seeing in your own child's class from K to 12 or even in the post-secondary world, any of these education-related conversations, let's have them. All right announcement yesterday come from the provincial government regarding a new emergency update preparedness website interestingly you can't see it yet so I guess I understand the thought process. You don't want to have people every single day in a panic, clicking and clicking and clicking to see if there's any updates. So what they're going to do is when it becomes apparent that they need to inform the public about what's happening with the weather, the potential for serious storms, because September's the month, right? You know, Igor, Fiona, so here we come. It's probably a really good idea. So what they're going to have is they'll activate it when the threat of extreme weather is real and adequate in step one it's a hurricane watch monitoring what's going on and the communities that might be impacted step two a hurricane warning that gets them to the area of preparing yourself and then in st- uh, step number three is when the dangerous weather event is happening the information you need to know real time road closures impacts on infrastructure evacuation orders and the like and once the war- the issue is gone the site deactivates again so it's there, it's probably a very wise step for the government to get all the accurate information at the tip of your finger so that you can be prepared and then you can know what to do when and if the dangerous weather event is happening where you live. And on that front, reports coming from the federal government regarding Federal Disaster Financial Assistance Arrangement Program. This has been in place for a long time, the DFAA. So beginning in 1970, Ottawa was sending money. Two communities impacted by these disasters to the tune of $8 billion. Seventy-three percent of that money was paid out in the last decade. And monies from the federal government actually flow to this province, Fiona, Igor, and otherwise. So not only is the money going out the door quicker than ever before, $8 billion since 1970, 73 percent of that in the last decade. The story becomes bigger here is that this is going to come in the form of some backup insurance. There's going to be parts of the country that have been prone to serious events, whether it be fires or floods, coastal events or what have you. We know there's plenty of opportunity for you to be battered by, say, storm surge from the sea and not have uh, your own insurance to cover it. So this is the backstop. The warnings are dire. You look around different parts of North America, there are regions on the continent that you cannot get insurance. So how this is going to look and what we're going to have to do between the government, the Insurance Bureau of Canada because it's a regulated industry but just imagine living somewhere and even if you bought the home forty years ago and there was no real weather related worries and now all of a sudden given what's been changing now you might not even be able to get insured. So again we'll put that out to, to the residents on the southwest coast regarding Fiona the decisions you're making about you know, looking for insurance, what that looks like, considering where you're going to rebuild those types of conversations, we're up for that as well this morning. Stick with the federal front. So there was an all party committee working towards what would be the terms of reference and who would be appointed to lead a public inquiry into foreign meddling foreign interference in elections. It was all the rage. It grabbed all the headlines for the longest while, and then maybe, just maybe, it was because they were working towards this end that it kind of went away. So there has been a a Quebec justice, uh, Marie-Josée Haugue, has been appointed. Uh, The terms of reference and her appointment have the full support of all the recognized parties in the House of Commons. So this is an important piece of work. It just begs the question as to why it took so long for the federal liberals to even do this. It was always going to end up here and it was mandatory for it to end up here. We probably won't glean a whole lot more information in the public given the clandestine nature of the intelligence services. And you know, remember David Johnson's work was immediately pushed back. People reacted to his appointment before there was ever a report tabled by Mr. Johnston. So the questions are really quite obvious, right? What do the intelligence agencies know about attempts by foreign states to interfere in Canadian democracy? And not just China, it should be all encompassing. How well is the information distributed amongst officials in the government? what have elected officials and senior civil servants known and what did they do about any attempts to interfere and have we ever done enough to respond so i think it's actually very pragmatic and positive and good news that they're proceeding with this inquiry and if you want to chime in on that one you know what to do how are we doing on the telephone david throats a little bit raw here this morning okay Bad news for people working for Air Canada in different parts of the province. There's some layoffs coming. They've been told back in August that uh, layoffs in Gander, Happy Valley Goose Bay, and Deer Lake. So bad news for the folks who are losing their jobs for however, however long that's going to last. 13 loss in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Gander loses 16. Deer Lake will lose 25. So on top of the jobs, which is bad news, on top of the jobs, it just screams to the reduced air traffic and opportunities that we have living on this island and in Labrador. It's not only the frequency of flights, but the cost is just out of control. And a story that was getting lots of snickers and went viral on social media is a couple of passengers that were kicked off a flight w- between Las Vegas and Montreal on Air Canada because the passengers who paid dearly for their ticket didn't want to sit in seats that were smeared by, and I know it's a morning show and you might be eating, so my apologies, smeared with the vomit. I mean, people get sick on flights, right? It happens. So it went from what is treated as a joke and some absolutely bad PR for Air Canada themselves, but now the public health agency of Canada is chiming in on it, as they should. So again, the possibility for transmission of illness through bodily fluids is quite well understood and known. You know, there's an opportunity not only to clean it properly, but to switch out the cushions. Do it the right way. But no. And their candidate has apologized, but imagine what they tried to do is cover up that seat that was smeared with coffee grounds and perfume. It was still wet. And the people rightfully said, I'm not sitting in that, and got turfed off the flight. So the Public Health Agency of Canada tuning in and chiming in on that one, it's a big deal. We want to get to the Hydro and Liberty Consulting uh, conversation as well, but I'm going to take a break so I can have uh, some water to quench my sore throat we're on twitter we're vocm open line follow us there email address is openline at vocm.com when we come back let's have a great show to wrap up the week that means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind don't go away welcome back to the program let's begin this morning on line number one let's take a to the diversity equity and inclusion lead for the office of to advance women apprentices that's mary ford good morning mary you're on the air
2: hi good morning patty how are you
1: very well thank you how about you
2: Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to touch base, let your listeners know about a new exciting training program that we have developed for employers. So the it's a six-hour workshop. It's called Mentoring Women in Trades Through Awareness and Understanding. Um, the six-hour workshop is free, and it is focused on employers' Supervisors, journey persons, um, with the intention to reduce workplace cultural barriers for women in trades. So it's going to create a positive, healthy mentor mentee relationship. And of course, the uh, program will provide employers and supervisors, as I said, the tools that they need to be strong mentors to women in trades. <laughs>
1: let's go back to when this office was first open and talk about what the landscape and then we'll move on with these opportunities because that's why you called you know what has the result been for women working in the trades because we all know that some jobs were deemed to be for men and some jobs were deemed to be for women nursing was for women and now we've thankfully are seen more and more men joining the ranks of the nurses and more and more women joining the ranks of the trade so how have things changed in your estimation from when the office opened to today
2: Oh, well, we have when the office opened back in 2009, um, there was very limited number of women in trades, you know, going into the uh, the seats. And the entire purpose of the office was the government recognized the need for support office because women were going into underrepresented trades. There were opportunities available for, you know, the, the equitable jobs. Um, so the recognition was there that there was a need for support office, not only to help open the doors to get people into the trades to give them an equal opportunity but to support them once they got there because as you said there's a lot of challenges that does come along with anybody working in an underrepresented career. Um, So that was in 2009 we're back and we're in 2023 now so we've been around a little while and we have over 2100 registered in our database throughout Newfoundland and Labrador currently.
1: (laughs) It's one thing for more and more women to be in the trades, but it also comes with the environment to be not only there for them to be able to be employed, for them to feel like they're part of the team, for them to feel like they're not being snickered at or whatever the case may be, and the behavior and the language used on the site. These things sometimes are generational changes that just unfortunately take time. What has happened insofar as that atmosphere?
2: Well, we're all living the current cultural shift right now as you speak so i often say it's like the um occupational health and safety you know in in the hebron days you wouldn't at one point in time in the 80s walk across a construction site without being tied on or somebody directing you but now when you go onto a site if you go into a mining site or anything safety 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 right and you do anything out of out of line and you're you're getting called in or written up for it that's where we need to be with diversity and inclusion. i mean it's Inclusion is actually the number one reason why women leave a lot of these positions because they're not heard or they're not respected or they're not included. Um, and actually, to go back to the course just quickly, like we cover on that. We, we touch on unconscious bias and we touch on the safety and, and the uh, bringing change into the workforce. Um, We, like I said, how to eat elephant, right? It's, It's one small bite at a time. This is a work in progress. There's still a lot of work to be done. But, you know, we're light years away from where we were, even 10 years ago. So a lot of this diversity and inclusion um, work needs to be done It needs to start from the top It needs to be put in collective agreements It needs to be put in government agreements To make sure that um, people are adhering to it But the other side of that is Right now, retention and um, recruitment Are big subjects on the table Because there's not enough workers There is a lack of people going into the trades. Employers are really scrambling to try to find good talent, and that's where the you know diversity comes into, whether it's women in trades, which of course is my umbrella, or immigrants or indigenous or different um, different diversity pillars. This is where the, the, the new labor pools are being pulled from. So people do need to start getting uncomfortable, and they need to start tapping into the different labor pools. Because the world's a lot better of a place when we hear everybody, isn't it?
1: Well, outcomes are better too, right? Just, it's yeah. just bottom line. Whether it be uh, in private business, with revenue and profit, it's all been proven out to be very, very accurate that, yeah, when the business or the uh, company or the – Elected officials look like the community they represent, things go better. Okay, so for the training opportunities that are coming, what exactly is going on? How do people avail if they're so inclined?
2: All right, so it's uh, kind of exciting. We're going to do, like I said, it's a six-hour workshop. It's going to be offered from 9.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., so it'll be during the business day, focused, again, on JPs, employers, supervisors of women in trade. Again, this information is easily transferable to any underrepresented groups that people might have coming into the organization. Um, We do have some sessions coming up in September. We are going to actually be doing virtual and in-person events, and we're going to be going throughout Newfoundland and Labrador up until March. So on the September 19th, we're going to be doing a virtual, and on the 25th of September, we're going to be doing an in-person event down at the uh, homelessness work in St. John's. Um, October, we'll be going to Labrador, and then November out on the West Coast. So for further information, visit our website, womenapprentices.ca. All of the dates and the listings of the times and the locations are there, as well as the ability to register. So go in and take a look. And, of course, if anybody has any questions, uh, my email is on there as well, and board at womenapprentices.ca. And welcome to Drop Me a Line, and I'll do what I can to answer any questions.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Mary. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Patty. Take care.
1: All right. Bye-bye. Mary Ford, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Lead for the Office of Women Apprentices. You know, in that world, and trades is a great job to have. If you have a trade that can be uh, part of building homes, you will be busy for the rest of your working days if we're ever going to try to get this housing issue settled. And, you know, I, I mentioned men in nursing. I mean, I thought it was a great idea to open up this particular office that Mary represents. But when we need to, you know, sort of take away some of these labels, nursing is not a woman's job. Nursing is a healthcare professional's job. And now, thankfully, we've seen more men in nursing seats in uh, training schools right across the country, including here. Remember the news story not so long ago? It was an all-male nursing team on one of the wards at the Health Sciences Center. Uh, a shift, whenever that was, a couple of months ago. We heard that story. Anyway, let's keep going. Uh, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Murray. You're on the air. Yes.
3: Good morning,
4: Hi, Patty. Morning Thanks to for you. taking my call. No problem. I'll just give you a little update what's going on here on the Southwest Coast. Same old thing. I got no response. And now I had a health inspector here. I got black mold in the basement of my house now. I still haven't heard a sound. The, the health inspector came here. She took the pictures, everything, and sent it off. She couldn't tell me anything. So everything got to go to the DFAA office. I haven't heard a sound. And what Greg Sheave said yesterday on the radio, by patting on the back, because he's 100% right, what's going on in Portabas with the town council is a disgrace with this money. Red Cross gave the money for those two big buildings, and Acoa, I guess Red Cross gave the best of it, and Fiona gave it to Red Cross for another year, and now they gave it back for the best. Another part of the conspiracy that's going on there, Patty.
1: we've tried to get answers on your behalf they're hard to come by i mean here we are approaching one year later so fiona made landfall the 24th of this month last this time last year and you know we're seeing that there's still evaluating money's going out the door to who and for what then all the allegations of money's being misappropriated misused and or abused it's uh, a real mess out there that much is for sure and i know your house is a mess
4: that's right, Patty. And I'll tell you, there's people in Port of Bass, a friend of mine I was talking to a couple of days ago, their house is damaged big time. They haven't got any response, but still they're taking down those 57 houses that had no impact from Fiona, and I don't understand it. And it's time for someone to get a good investigation into everything that's gone on here on this coast. Who had the right to give Town Council Port of Bass all this money? And lead the rest of us down the course with nothing.
1: Fair enough. And we've been trying to get that conversation going, trying to get some answers for your, on your behalf and anyone else out there on the Southwest Coast who's not getting the help they need. Uh, I appreciate you making time again this morning, Murray. Would you like to say anything else?
4: Oh, that's good, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call.
1: Anytime. Stay in touch. Not a Thank you. All right. All right. Good day. Bye, Murray. You know, and again, There is, I think, and it's becoming more and more obvious as time goes by, there's going to have to be a careful audit of every dollar that flowed from businesses, governments, individuals to try to help the folks on the Southwest Coast. People stepped up right away. It was very encouraging after what was a brutal event on the Southwest Coast. We all saw the visuals. I had to give up on that Saturday afternoon looking at them because it was just too much. So yes, Hard-earned money and matching dollars from governments, that has we have to know that every single dollar that was donated is spent with the intention that was behind the donation. You know, and not to say that there's one or two or 10 or 12 people who are willfully and purposefully misusing the money, whether it be the folks doling it out or the people applying for, but we're getting more and more reports that, to me, it just means we've got to be careful and got to make sure that all the money that was donated was used as was intended. Let's take a break. Don't go away.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome
1: back to the program. Let us go to line number four. Say so more to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Clary. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty. Do you have any listeners? Thanks, as always, sir, for taking the call.
1: No problem at all. I think we're talking about price-setting panel concerns.
5: Price setting panel and um, and aquaculture. Okay, I uh, got two two topics I want to touch on, so I'll get I'll get right to it. So, in, in terms of fish pricing the in, in terms of the fish price setting system in this province, um, as you know, the provincial government called a second review this week of the system of fish pricing. Uh, it had to happen. The price setting system, from my perspective, collapsed this year and last. Over the past couple of years, the final offer selection system. That we have in this province it hasn't worked in terms of setting uh setting prices that either the fishermen will fish for or processors will buy for one or the other so the review has until october the 12th it's about five weeks they got to put together a report they got to recommend a formula-based framework that's how they put it uh, for, for fish price setting so i have two issues patty number one This is the second review of the fish price of fish pricing in this province in two years. And this is the second year that there will be no direct consultations, no meetings with the inshore fleet, with with inshore owner operators directly. Now, now Patty, fishing enterprises live and die by the price of fish, and they should be heard from directly. I don't understand why this government, why the Fury government doesn't want to hear directly from owner operators. And, And then there's the second point. And, and this is connected to the first point. So the second point is that this review doesn't go far enough. Um, like last year's review, this, this one, well, once again, it, it, what it's going to do is skim the surface of the problem with the inshore. There are accusations on every coast of anti-competitive, uh, of punitive behavior or punishing behavior by the by the processing sector against the inshore. I'll give you some examples. You had a, a fisherman called open line just a few weeks ago. He complained about the grading system. As a, result, as a direct result of that call, the processor stopped buying that fisherman's cod a fisherman made a comment a little while ago on Facebook uh, uh, and the processor also stopped buying his fish. A fisherman sells his crab to one buyer so another buyer won't buy his cod. A fisherman wants to sell his shrimp, shrimp in the Maritimes and local companies won't sell him his ice because of repercussions from the processors. So my point is the licensed fisherman in this province today is as under the thumb of the companies just as much so as their grandfathers were controlled by the by the merchants. Fish buying, fish buying, the 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 system in this province is even excluded, and you and I have mentioned this before, from the federal Competition Act, which is ridiculous. What makes the fishery and fishermen any less important than any other industry or small business in this country? So so this review should hold direct meetings with owner operators, and from from CNL's perspective, expand the review to investigate the lack of competition in the industry because the lack of competition affects price just as much as the pricing system itself.
1: Sure and of course the fish harvesters would like to get maximum value for the raw material like every other industry on the face of the earth. With direct consultation Is Well, my understanding is, and I'm not intimately involved, but if it's the ASP, the the FFAW, and the government involved in these conversations and negotiations or consultations, isn't that, in essence, the inshore harvester?
5: No. Um, uh, The union specifically doesn't speak for all fleets or all owner-operators. That should be clear. Uh, made clear over the ba- uh, past number number of years. I talk to intro owner operators around this province every single day, and the stories that I hear are stories that this government should also hear about how they, like I say before... They're under the thumb of the companies in every way. They cannot move from one buyer to the next. They're told when to fish. They're told how much to fish. That raises safety issues, all kinds of different issues. So it's not just the pricing system. It's the lack of competition. And I don't understand why the province is is dealing with one and totally ignoring the other. They do so uh, to the detriment, to the peril the continued peril of the inshore fishery. Might, the second comment, Patty. I, I know you got a, I know you got a bunch of uh, collars and stuff, and it, it, it's go for a Friday. So I'm going to go for it. Yep. So there's an aquaculture conference uh, in town this week, uh, which you, you you've also had collars on. There's a, there's a funding announcement by the province for research and development. I heard loveless about that. There's there's lots of hoopla. There's lots of support. There's lots of cheerleading, and I, I, I absolutely understand the importance of aquaculture jobs. I heard the mayor that was on yesterday, particularly to the South Coast. But, Patty, my point is that we can't forget that British Columbia and Ottawa are getting out of the at-sea aquaculture business off Western Canada. And you've said this many times here off Eastern Canada. We're welcoming those companies with open arms. So fish farming is actually growing off the South Coast. More cages, more fish. More potential environmental impact, more impact on species like Atlantic salmon, lobster, and groundfish. So, I have two points. Number one is the province is both the aquaculture regulator, they license aquaculture operators, and they're also responsible for the environmental impact. So, we've got to be careful here, Patty, because that's a conflict. You've got a government that's a cheerleader on the one hand. At the same time, that they're also the regulator and the protector of the environment. Now, from my perspective, Patty, that's a recipe for problems. Now, we've got to be cheerleaders behind our industries. Absolutely. Do we need jobs? Absolutely. We need a great future for Newfoundland and Labrador. But one fishery, the aquaculture industry, cannot be at the expense of the other. And and this province is conflict is, is conflicted. So so Ottawa is, is Ottawa is responsible for aquaculture off Western Canada. Here off Eastern Canada, it's uh, it, it's under the jurisdiction of the provinces. So Ottawa's getting out of it uh, on the uh, on the west coast, but it's okay for the provinces to proceed on the east coast. Boy, I tell you, last time I looked, BC and Newfoundland and Labrador were in the same country, and they have two policies for different coasts. Boy, I mean, if
1: that's not a red flag, Patty, what is? Well, I mean, I've mentioned it several times. The you know, there's a couple of things in that uh, in that world. So right off the bat, the commercial fishery off the western coast of the country is really much different than it is off the east coast of the country. Number one, but in the world of aquaculture, it's the exact same. It's putting a pen out in the water to farm. FinFish. Salmon dominates the aquaculture industry in this province. So yes, you can manage commercial fisheries different because they're different uh, in their makeup. But aquaculture is aquaculture. It's either good, bad, or indifferent. It either needs better regulation and oversight, or it doesn't. The disease management would be the exact same. Uh, Pesticide use would be the exact same. Die-offs would be the same. Escapes would be the same. So I don't know how and why the federal government thinks that there's a different playing field left versus right coast. Like it never made any sense to me, and they've never been able to justify the difference either. So. Well, commercial one thing aquaculture and the way the feds handle it uh, absolutely different and it shouldn't be different
3: yeah and uh, you know
5: very well said patty and like i say uh, for ottawa to leave it to the provinces of eastern canada when provinces like newfoundland and labrador are conflicted are in a conflict of interest by being both the regulator responsible for the environmental impact like I say, Patty, I just see that as a recipe for disaster. There have been too many examples of that in the past. I also heard Peter Leonard uh, yesterday, uh, a very good call to your show yesterday, about the growing impact of, of aquaculture industry and the wild fisheries. That's real, Patty. That impact on not just on uh, uh, fishermen getting to the fishing grounds, but the impact on stocks um, is real. Fishermen are being displaced. Wild stocks are being impacted. This province has to be extra vigilant. Again, we can't have an aquaculture industry at the expense of the wild fisheries, and because of all the hoopla and all the rah-rah and let's-go jobs, again, Patty, we've had too many examples in the past where we paid the price for that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we we learn lessons the hard way. I suppose everybody does, most every jurisdiction. But I guess it's learning from the the hard knock lessons is the the be all and end all, the tell tale. Uh, anything else this morning, Ryan? I no,
5: that about sums it up, Patty. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
1: I appreciate your time. Take Thank care. Uh, it's Ryan Cleary. He's the ED Executive Director at C N L. Uh, let's keep going. Line number one, Barry. You're on the air.
6: Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call.
1: No problem. Patty, I'd
6: uh, like to. Uh Inform the, uh, say that the big game season uh, hunting begins tomorrow. uh, All over the island and Labrador, too, I believe. Uh, As well as small game, partridge rabbits, our partridge of grouse open the following weekend on the 16th, and the rabbits open the first Saturday in October. I'd like to wish everybody a safe and successful season. A couple of safety points. uh, Make sure that uh, you identify positively what it is that you're going to shoot at before you shoot it. And I also make sure that the shot you are going to take is a safe one. That is not in front of side, side, and behind the target you're about to shoot at. Of course, there are a host of other uh, safety uh, things too, Patty, but uh, they just mentioned a couple of them off the top. And as well, Patty, this is the sixth year, the sixth year Patty, of youth hunting. And you know, we I talked to you several several times probably uh, hundreds of times about youth hunting over the years and you know, the big uproars, oh somebody's gonna get killed or this or that. Patty, and I don't mean to jinx anything, but you know, so far so good you, youth are being uh, are being safe and as well, you know, the adults had to be there with them as well. So uh kudos to the youth hunting and uh yeah.
1: And maybe, you know, I, I shouldn't say I get a kick out of it, but yes, you want to do your best to keep your scent away from the animal so that you can indeed be successful, but they are not going to run away if they see a spot of blaze orange in the woods. So it's probably a good idea to make sure you could be seen by other hunters as opposed to, in to- entirely ensconced in in camo, camouflage.
6: Yes, Patty, absolutely. As Wildlife says in their in their book in their, and their... And their uh hunting magazine be safe be seen wear blaze orange
1: yeah makes and sense we to do,
6: me and we, and we echo that sentiment and uh, excuse me and uh, you know there's just a couple of times where you want to wear full camouflage like uh, waterfowl hunting but you can wear blaze orange to where you're going to and then when you get there then you can take off the blaze orange and, and be camoed off
1: yeah, I mean, there's, there's. I think most hunters who pay any attention to safety of their safety, the safety of other hunters, and to ma- make sure you identify carefully and clearly the shot you're going to take, they know all this, and hopefully they'll bring all that information with them and their bodies when they make their way into the woods to participate in the big game hunt. Absolutely.
6: Uh- Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, I also like to say that uh, get a plug in for sharing the harvest as well. If you're out there, big game hunters this year, you find that you don't you have too much meat, or you'd like to give some away. Uh, think of us, please, sharing the harvest. NL, we're on Facebook. You can get in touch with us there. And as well, if you don't want to donate to the food banks, think of senior citizens in your life. You'd be surprised with the uh, with the uh, result of the, of giving it to them.
1: Hundred percent. It's been a really excellent program. So to everyone involved with getting it off the ground, bravo.
6: Well, thank you Even very food, much. Barry. I accept that, that on behalf of us all. And uh, you know, so and uh, I've been talking to you as well, Patty, about the uh, fishery guardians. And it seems like the there is there is going to be some kind of extension and made at the eleventh hour. But the eleventh hour is better than no hour.
1: Absolutely, Barry. Appreciate the time this morning. Have a safe season
6: patty thank you very much and as always been a
1: pleasure my pleasure take care all right bye-bye there we go so big game season opening up all right uh friend and colleague jonathan richler is in the queue asking what i think is a pretty important question do all party standing committees achieve anything we'll have that discussion right after this dunk away welcome back to the show let's go line number three good morning jonathan richler you're on the air morning brother how are you today very well thanks for asking how about you Pretty good, thank you. So good morning to you and
7: all of your listeners. I tell you, it's it's a hard act to follow, both Barry Fordham and Ryan Cleary, but I'll, I'll do my best to keep uh, everyone interested and riveted in your excellent program so far today. Patty, um, looking at what's happening with uh, mental health and addictions and these uh, satellite groups which are forming um, to try and hit the streets literally and make changes because they have stated publicly that they think the government is not moving fast enough or or is effective uh, is, well, not only dangerous, but um, leads everyone to ask the question, I mean, why do we not have a proper system of governance uh, in place? So I've been like – pondering this, and, and I just want to remind everyone that the biggest employer in this province is the government. We have so many bureaucrats that um, are on the payroll across Newfoundland and Labrador, and I wonder, as we look at paper after paper, and task force after task force, and all-party committee, and there's another word out there, anyway, another task force. They're all of certain names, and they all collect um, leaders or community leaders but we already have them in place we have the government of newfoundland which are our external consultants they're the internal consultants they are and should be our all-party committees because they are the ones with lived experience to help discuss policy and look towards implementation because they know the limitations and mechanisms of governance much better than external consultants what do you think
1: yeah, look, sometimes, uh, you know, consultants can be not only part of political theater, but it gives you a bit of, you know, plausible deniability. Well, we, we hired the so-called expert in the field. They told us this, and so we went with it, and it blew up in our face. not my fault. Same thing with maybe the optics of, you know, it gives a sense of acknowledgement and urgency to bring all differing voices in the House of Assembly or all differ- differing voices in the House of Commons together to try to work towards a common goal. It's the bit of the kumbaya and the uh, the acknowledgement of the seriousness of an issue, the larger question that I think you're posing, and I think it's the right one, is, is it anything beyond that? Does it work? Are there examples that we can look back and say, well, here's how it worked. In 2017, when they struck the All-Party Committee on Mental Health and Addictions, the work they did, I think, was a big part of the eventual Towards Recovery Report, not to say that we couldn't have done it without an All-Party Committee. Sometimes it might be as much as stalling as opposed to pragmatism
7: pragmatism you also mentioned the, the trumpeting by politicians to uh, demonstrate that they're urgent right so let's look at this 2017 report uh, towards recovery i spent uh, a good part of yesterday reading this and it reads like your classic report and your classic united nations documents just pull any off the uh, off the shelf and they'll all use words like eliminate amend prioritize encourage here we have Uh, one of the recommendations number 10 amend the residential tenancies act to provide authority to effectively deal with inadequate rental properties including boarding and rooming houses Mark Wilson was on with you yesterday talking about exactly that six years later um, eliminate the stigma and discrimination associated with mental illness and addiction in healthcare settings schools workplaces and communities this can be achieved through uh, encouraging increased uptake of mental health first aid expanding availability of this program throughout the province I mean these goals are big and and vague and it's been six years and we know that there are limitations within uh, all of the institutions uh, to just get a general curriculum out, let alone uh, take on these new roles to help eliminate stigma and discrimination associated with mental illness. Who provides the training and the capacity uh, for these levels of implementation? I don't know.
1: Nor do I. Is I I read towards recovery as well. Uh, My biggest takeaways, uh, some of the ones you just read out, they're lofty, they're sensible, it's exactly what we should be doing, but who offers the training? And then even as importantly, or more importantly, is how do we measure whether or not we got to where we wanted to be? So right. uh, how does that look? You know, what is what does success look like? We're talking about joint replacement surgeries and doing things to deal with the backlog. We'll know whether or not that's working because we'll see the numbers. How do we mm-hmm. understand stigma erosion and expanding services and offerings? Because we don't do a very good job of trapping the data on that front, period. So how do we know whether or not this report gets us where we need to be, not where we want to be, but where we desperately need to be?
7: Well, I guess trapping the data is done in a different way, and I'm, I'm just I'm wondering if, if we we already have that data insofar as if you are a bureaucrat and you work within the system, you have to account for your uh, measurable uh, achievements, right? So if we have people working on uh, a new education curriculum or <clears throat> um, people within uh, Service NL working on the amendments to the Residential Tenancies Act, all of that data is already captured because there are reports given to the. Assistant Deputy Ministers, the directors, the the deputy ministers, etc. So
1: there's a paper trail. I mean, sure. I was referred to maybe some certainly. of the more vague areas that you referenced, stigma yeah, stuff, yeah. that that kind of stuff. Of course, it's important, but those are the types of captures that I don't even know how you achieve that. You know, yeah. how do you take the temperature of the community at large regarding things that are very unique, person to person, very unique based on their own personal circumstances or their own diagnosis or someone in their social circle or family? That's what I was meaning by capturing data. Sorry
7: fair and and i think uh that's an excellent point it's the subjective versus the objective right when you use words such as stigma how do you how do you eliminate it when most people have a different concept as to what the idea is 100 percent. yeah uh tough ones and why bother putting them on paper and and why why do we continuously seemingly kick these cans down the road with more task forces and and all party committees i'm getting a little tired of it and and I mean, externally for advice, it makes me wonder if government has any confidence in the people they already pay to assist in governance. The bureaucracy is the all-party committee is my, is my main point. And I don't know if we're using it uh, or if they feel that they are being uh, accessed properly. And, of course, we can't hear from them. Because they're in fear of losing their, their job. So we have these external consultants. We can either say, thanks, Moira Green, for a great uh, paper, and we'll, we'll see if we implement anything, or, you know, fill in the blank. Moira Green could be anybody. But that report was certainly um, touted as being uh, the savior of of the season, whenever that was. Yeah. Where are we? Right? It, yeah. it just seems that it, it's, it's more paper. Than it is uh, implementation, and um, we're all very frustrated. And, and people are standing on the steps of a Confederation Building, demanding answers. And uh, I wonder—I mean, if any uh, of the people who stood up at that um, demonstration recently about uh, addictions, and, and I think it was the tenth death or the eleventh death that really made people stand up—if anyone would have pulled this six-year-old document out and said, "You know, where are we?" where are we on all of these promises and goals
1: fair point on the addictions world i think even in the short past six years which is not a big uh, time frame if we're looking at big scheme of things but Mm -hmm. things have changed there haven't they i mean whether it be the prevalence or the prominence of a fentanyl, whether it be the expansion of the organized crime world in this province, which we have seen, and we've seen results of that, whether it be on the west coast with the joint task force between the RNC and the RCMP. So I think things have maybe changed a little bit there, but you're you're absolutely right. And you know, back to your uh, comment about consultants, we just overuse them. We have got a really. Fully staffed, public service. The people who hold most of the knowledge, information, and power, I would suggest, are the senior bureaucrats. They're nameless and faceless. We can't get to talk to them, which I think is really bad for everybody, to be honest with you, and not to be so uh, philosophical. I think it's bad for democracy, to be honest. You know, we can have bucks stopping on ministerial desks, but that doesn't get us down to the brass tacks of how we arrived at a policy decision because we don't get to talk to the people who formulated it.
7: It certainly doesn't. The uh, We've also, as we've seen an increase in addictions thanks to uh, super chemicals like fentanyl and, and easier distribution systems and 3D printed guns, you know that these things and these situations are only really going to get worse. You're darn right there's an organized crime problem in this in this province. I've seen it, uh, we've all seen it in our neighborhoods. We've seen it uh, in the newspapers. We've, we see it everywhere. Uh, and it's there. It's getting better, seemingly. Uh, enforcement uh, seems to be struggling, but we know also in our in our mental health and addictions world that we are struggling to fill positions, uh, whether it be psychiatrists or psychologists or anywhere in between, guidance counselors in schools. So we have a shrinkage and we have a growth. Um, so where is this path towards recovery? How big is this path? Is it a six-lane highway or is it
1: the road to Ellison? Yeah, and, and who's on it? Um, who's on it? Yeah, all very interesting stuff here. And there was a lot to what he said and a lot of different uh, interrelated things, albeit conversations that really do need a lot more of us talking about it. Just a very final uh, comment from me, and just to get your reaction, I guess this is offered as in some form devil's advocacy. So when these reports, some of them may be helpful, some of them might be useless, some of the consultants may be overused, but things that are in there, whether they be tangential or vague or measurable. Is it not helpful that some of these documents are used to provoke conversations like this, whether it be through a critical lens, whether it be to expand the conversation amongst the general public, because that's kind of where stigma related stuff kind of lies, you know, it's human nature kind of stuff. So are these things helpful if it does indeed provoke conversation and a better understanding of what's actually happening?
7: Well, that is one of the main uh, pillars of democracy is the the ability for all of us to openly discuss these ideas. So it's a fair point. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll counter with this uh, in, in, a, in a dark sort of way. Um, how many population growth strategies have we had over the past two decades? And when was the only significant time significant time that we witnessed and are enjoying population growth? It's when the, the other parts of the world are at war. Boy. <laughs> uh, true. Right. Any strategy, like these strategies are so... So impossible to implement is is what I'm saying. And we are benefiting uh, in terms of population growth here with with wonderful new Canadians. And it is not a result of any bureaucratic uh, white paper that came out over the past two decades. It's a result of immediate emergency and the uh, ability of uh, this country uh, to accept with open arms and help new Canadians come in and help us grow.
1: War, strife, famine, climate, there's... And those are all forms of war, I guess. Uh, Jonathan, yeah. great to have you on. Nice to speak with you this morning. I look forward to my next sandwich and a hang.
7: Ha, me too. And thanks for letting me stir the pot. Take, take care, care
1: buddy. Have a great weekend. You too, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Lots to pick up on there, if you are so inclined. I, I'll take Sandra here before we get to the news. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air. Hi, Sandra. Hi, how are you? Excellent today, thanks. How you doing?
8: Good, good. Um, Yesterday, I um, lost a set of keys up around um, Military Road and Bannerman, and uh, they belong to um, uh, Minnie Cooper. I got four. I have four keys on it, and I have looked everywhere from the ice cream parlor back up to Stella's Circle. That's where I was. So I just wanted to... Want anybody, you know, that's out there that picked up a set of keys? Um, I'd appreciate it if uh, they could give me a
1: call, maybe, or a text. Sure, do you want to say your number publicly on the airwaves or yeah. leave it with David? Absolutely. What do you want to do? Okay, go yeah, for
8: it. Absolutely. Okay, so my my name is Sandra, and my uh, cell number is 709 330 2504. I would be so appreciative if those keys got back in my hands today. The time I lost it yesterday was around 4 o'clock.
1: Okay, 709-330-2504. It's a collection of four keys, one of them would be for her Mini Cooper and we know the price to replace those keys is out (laughs) of control. So let's hope that whoever picked them up is going to call or text you so that we can reunite the keys with yourself.
8: Thank you so much.
1: Good luck. Let me know if you got him.
8: Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye, Sandra. All right. Uh, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get it going. Get in the queue while we're taking the news break. And when we come back, we'll be speaking with you on the topic, which is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The cabin party with
0: Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM.
1: Okay. There we go. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Pat Collins. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning. Yes.
9: Oh, Patty, Good morning. How are you, sir?
1: Doing well, thanks. How about you?
9: Oh, good, good. Just called in to uh, let people know that uh, I'm celebrating my thirteenth novel now. This coming, uh, this coming Saturday at uh, two o'clock at the old courthouse in Harbor Grace. Of course, the scene where many of the uh, accused were uh, were uh, experienced the ministerial trial, uh, along with the uh, accused. Uh, uh, a policeman who was accused of uh, shooting a Riverhead man. with well, all start the novelist self called River Murder Patty started out with a uh, with a policeman who came, like so many did. followed the chief of the police in St. John's, here in Nova And In 1881, he came to. In 1880, he came to Harbour Grace to find his family and see them for the first time, because his previous relatives had came in Riverhead. And when he came here to Riverhead, of course, he discovered that the you know he got to know them pretty well and four years later he finds himself back in riverhead just after the affray and he got the his first case to investigate the murder of one of his cousins so uh uh with all, amid all that tension so i created an historical account uh, a historical fiction account of an event that happened in our town so uh, i just want to let people know that river murder is going to be a going to be on on shelves now this week and uh In in all most locations where new books are sold, and we want to have a celebration with the band Amity who is coming in to entertain us, and I want to call in and invite people down just to have some fun, even if they don't want to buy a book or just come along and have some fun, at the old courthouse which is just beautifully restored. Um, Just one word on on that: uh, I got to congratulate Craig Flynn and Brenda O'Reilly. I don't know, Pat, if you've been to that—you've been to that site—but it's a absolutely beautiful location to have an historical novel, you know. So, uh, and again, a reach out to Flanker Press, uh, Jerry Cranford, and his team, who helped me over the years put this book together, and uh, uh, they've been so helpful. So, I just want to call in and and bouquet to them and, and thank them for it, and thank you for the opportunity to get online and. And, uh, and tell people
1: about this. No problem. So I actually ran into Brenda the other day. Her and Craig are tireless in doing things and restorations like you just mentioned with the, the courthouse and the old church and then Yellow Belly, of course, here in town. So bravo to what they've done, uh, number one. Uh, number two, Pat, this is your genre. You're all about it. The last couple of novels that we've spoke about, Body on the Beach, uh, Murder at Lover's Leap, is it just the intrigue or the appetite for crime, stories that drives it, or is this your passion inside of writing novels?
9: Yeah, I've I, I, I got to be driven uh, by true events, even though I create historical, uh, you know, fictional characters and fictional events out of those. And I'm, I am truly intrigued by the history, particularly when you grow up in this beautiful town and now it's so peaceful, and everybody gets along so well. But knowing what it was like 150 years ago, and the struggles these people had, and the great events that happened here, but those are the things that uh, drive me to write. I got to be, I got to be evoked, so to speak, to write these books and uh, to write these events. Yes, I, I live in those times in my mind, uh, and finally tumbling out of that. After reading the uh, Harvard-Grey Standard, the Evening Telegram and the New Flander, I read those old papers. Everybody thinks I'm a bit nuts, but I spend hours just scouring those papers, looking at stories that are in there. So when you read those things, it makes you think, wow, what were these people like? How did they? How did this happen? And the true story of, uh, of policemen coming here from Ireland and going to the Tiranova stabulary in 1880s and then finding relatives, I mean... That's all true. You know, this one here, Sean Ryan, of course, is a a depiction. But to know that this happened back then, and these men came across here and police Newfoundlanders and and finally, probably they're all relatives and things like that, I I found that there was something intriguing about that. So you're right, yes, those are the things that uh, threw me, you know. So uh, anyway, this is my 13th, and uh, it's so... It's such a, such a celebration I'm hoping to have And anyone is invited uh, Young and old and, and we'd love to see people there You know
1: Absolutely And the, the stories regarding the Irish Guard Being part of the policing in this province Is fascinating There's no question about it So Patrick Olin's 13th novel Is uh, out there now It's The River Murder And if you're interested in attending the uh, book launch Pat would love to see it A bit of fun Even if you don't buy a book But we all hope you do Thank you Pat Take care Appreciate your time this morning Pat good luck Bye bye Okay bye bye Yeah well I guess It's similar to Just how much we see On television On the small screen And on the silver screen Stories about crime I guess it intrigues many It certainly has sold A lot of books Over the years It's certainly Made into many A TV show And many a feature film So I guess It's a genre That's proven to be uh, Terrific And you know you know, whether it be you're in, interested in romance novels or beach reads, crime and biographies, they seem to be pretty popular things out there in that world. All right, let's check the Twitter box. you are VOCM up online, you know what to do. Been asked the question about why there's any attachment or association with this accused, uh, Marcus Hicks and the charge of sexual assault and online luring. And of course, I tried to make the story bigger than that one case because it is, especially when we talk about the predators and the evil lurking around every digital corner. You know, the question was, why is there any mention of him being a former substitute teacher and or his involvement with volleyball? And just from where I sit, and I didn't write the headlines, but I read the story, is I I suppose when the people he was directly involved with in sport or in education were also targeted with his, allegedly targeted with his fictitious online presence, then I guess that naturally becomes part of the story, right? So it's no, at this point, you know, he'll get his day in court and like everyone deserves, but if the involvement of the fellow, the accused, also has a relationship with people who he taught or coached or mentored or officiated, then I guess that becomes a natural part of the story. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the government's use of consultants. And then we're going out to the southwest coast of the island to speak with the mayor of Channel Port of Assets, Brian Button. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I meant to do this for the town of uh, Petty Harbour, Maddox Cove, off the top of the show, but the community is under a boil water advisory until further notice. There's a mechanical issue with the town's chlorine station, so for the folks in Petty Harbour, Maddox Cove, the community is under a boil water advisory until further notice. Let's go to line number three. So good morning to the mayor, of Channel Portobello. That's Brian Button. Good morning, Mayor Button. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show.
10: Well, thanks for having me on there this morning, Murray, or uh, Patty, but I wanted to call in about uh, your caller this morning, Murray, again. on on there this morning, and I guess it just frustrates me to no end when I hear all this talk about conspiracy theories and so on and so forth. It, it's just very frustrating. Uh, for starters, I want to clear the air on a couple of points that he made there. Number one, when it comes to the donations that have been made by anyone, and whether it's been business, individual donations, and so on and so forth, the Portabas Town Council is not in charge or distributing any of that money. We're not the. Uh, there's a committee that's separate uh, to the Portabas Town Council. Our councilors, myself, are not involved at all. Uh, the, Did
1: Murray say that this morning? Because he's always been making references to uh, the Red Cross or Minister Hogan or the like. I don't. I don't recall Murray saying that the council was in his way. Did he?
10: Well, he said that the town council, the Port of Basque count, Town Council, has money up there and what the council is doing the conspiracy that the council of Portabasque of is doing. My my thoughts on that is is that the Portobello Council has a representation on this committee. Okay, just like the community in which Murray is from, there's a representation that represents the outlining communities, and there's individuals that are on that committee that are just are there for various reasons. There's people there with expertise in doing this. Now, to explain a little bit about the committee so that people don't think that, you know, there's money withheld from people and so on and so forth. Over the last little while, there's been over two to 300 applications that have come in. First of all, the committee had to be put together. Then a development of an application process of being able to, you know, just so there would be some accountability on the end of the day of where all this money have gone. And that, that was put in place. Now, over the period of the last 12 months now, we've had money that's been distributed from DFAA, money that's been distributed from Red Cross. There was, in the beginning, there was a setup of donations and things that were given out, whether it was uh, gift cards to clothing to whatever the case may be. There was all kinds of things in the beginning. So there's been monies that's been distributed around. And I know from personally, from when people made donations, I know people said they wanted to, to make sure that monies were going to people that absolutely needed it and people that would would need to have the money for various reasons. That's what this committee has been trying to do, is to try to distribute the money or find, get the applications out there to see what the needs are, see where the shortfalls are where people who haven't received monies for different things, these applications have a listing of everything what people may have lost or need or so on and so forth. So the accountability part of it is in place. And over the next couple of weeks, money is going to be starting to roll out and this money will start going in the hands of people that need it. But this committee that works separately from any council, whether it's the Port of basque Council or Burnt Islands or if it's Island Ward or whatever, this is a separate entity that's handling this so that we don't have input into where the monies go.
1: Fair enough. My thoughts on it and here's why I think that, you know, a careful analysis after the fact about where the money came from, where the money went is important and here's why I think it and I'll get your reaction. Things like this are inevitable to happen again. It might not be post-tropical storm Fiona, it might not be anything just like that, but there's gonna be need for governments and individuals and organizations to step up to the plate and help when the people and communities are impacted. If there are stories and there's thoughts that there was maybe some abuse or misappropriation, it might make people hesitant in the future to do what we so many of us did uh, after Fiona. So that's where I think is helpful, and it's not to say that there's uh, shady or nefarious characters and people are willfully trying to to betray us who donated. Not, not that at all, because when that's done, then people will say, okay, I'm familiar with these organizations and these types of committees have worked. Consequently, when I need to make another donation to help communities like yours rebuild, I'm doing it. What do you think?
10: Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And that's why I say that we've put the mechanisms in place to make sure there is total accountability of the funds that are there. I mean, we could have had these funds come in and started handing money out, left over, you know, hand over fist when the money started to come in. And I mean, that would have been inappropriate. No one would have known where the money went. Uh, a, a process has been put into place an independent process to make sure that there is total accountabilities for all the funds because one of the things I said right from the get-go as mayor of this community was that when the monies came in it's probably one of the worst parts of dealing with all of this it's great that the donations all come in but at the end of the day when it's all the dust is cleared and everything is done everyone's going to ask the question where did all the money go and for us, with all of this piece, that is why we put the measures in place to make sure that there was accountability for it and that when questions are asked at the end of the day, someone can show exactly where people's monies and hard-earned money was donated and where it went to help people in the region. And it's not just for Port of Ask. And this is the part that gets me very, very frustrated, very, very irritated when I hear it. It's not monies from Puerto Basque, it's for the entire region, for any area that was affected. Unfortunately, being the, I suppose, the largest center in the beginning, the monies all started coming into the town of Puerto Basque. I was the face and eyes of everything that was going from a media source of it. So this is where monies were coming. But with all that said and done, that's why in the beginning, we said, look, we can't have this money come into the town coppers. We need to have a separate account. We need to get some accountability here, and we need to get it rolling and and find ways on how it will be distributed. Because we have no expertise in that part of it, and nor do we want to claim that we do. But with the committee that is in place, there are expertise that are on those committees that are able to help and have been invo- involved in disaster relief funds. Everyone from the Salvation Army has a representation on there. The Alliance Club has a representation that's, that these people have been involved in disaster relief funds. And they're there with their expertise to help on how things should be distributed. And that's where I take relief in knowing that that is being done and you know i I listened to and i gotta speak for on another point of all the things that's been in these conversations i swore i wasn't going to call in anymore with regards to comments that were being made by murray and and in his community and so on and so forth i make no apologies that as mayor of the community of port of Bass, that i've been advocating on behalf of the residents of my community that have been affected sure and i will continue to advocate on behalf of the people in my community that were affected and have themselves in areas where they're in either what we would call a danger zone and so on and so forth i'll keep doing that i can't speak to what's happening in the community in which murray lives in i'm not the municipal leader in that community i know his municipal governments have been doing things as well and he needs to talk and be concerned of what's happening in there and talk to his community leaders and talk to them don't worry about what the mayor of Ask is doing in the council of portabasque we're looking after what needs to be the needs in our community
1: I understand that point and accept it in full, of course. I mean, you're the mayor of Port of Basque, not anywhere else. Uh, Before we run out of time, this is a bit philosophical, I suppose, but people are making decisions about what's next, you know, how to rebuild, where to rebuild. What does the conversation sound like in the community? Because, you know, full well, like even with the rain forecast last week, people probably are shuddering like they never did before because they lived through the landfall of post-tropical storm Fiona. So are people staying? Are people leaving? What's going on?
10: Well, Patty, you know, this has been the difficult part of all of this. And, and you know, sometimes I, you know, and, and for Murray as well, he's gone through a difficult time. And I understand that. He's, he's got a situation there. He's trying to get it handled and he's trying to get it taken care of. And I believe that at some point he'll probably get all of that straightened away. But, for everybody that's in in all of our communities, my community and the neighboring communities, you know there was no book when all of this happened there was There was nothing that told us that we've got to do this, do that, and do whatever. The storm have come and so far it has affected everybody in a major way, me included. You know, I keep telling you and I advocate for mental health services and so on and so forth. Myself, personally, I've had to reach out and find mental health services just because of the way that the storm has affected us. You know, we do have weather events now and it doesn't have to be the largest weather event out. It can be, you know, like you said, it could be rainfall amounts that we're going to have, major rainfall amounts with some wind and stuff. It's affecting people in a very drastic way mentally and living in the communities and living where they're at. And this has been something now that's been ongoing and will continue. And now we're moving into hurricane season. It's probably getting worse for people. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's something that we're talking about and we're trying to watch every day because, I know speaking about in our community, we don't need a Fiona anymore to have major issues. We said in the beginning, after we saw the aftermath of everything that had happened in our communities, it would take longer than a year to get it all fixed up. It's going to take years to fix up what Fiona had left us. And for a mental side of things, it's probably never going to be fixed because people are going to live with that forever and that's been the it's it's probably one of the most difficult things that i see in our communities now is that when when the storm happened back a year ago and you mentioned to people we should leave our homes people said the words we've been through this before we don't hear that anymore when there's a storm coming now you feel the sense of anxiety and you feel the sense of what people are going through so sometimes when people are on and they're talking about people got this and people got that and they got too much for this, and they got too much for that, money will never ever substitute for what people have lost mentally and what they're suffering through through a mental health perspective. So I find it difficult when I hear that and as a mayor of the community, I wake up every morning too and look across the table and say to my wife, as a volunteer, we're not in a paid position, I look at my wife and say, why do I even do this? And I've advocated for years for people to be involved in municipal politics, to get involved in your community, do what you can for your community. Myself, I've been involved for over 20 plus years. But now I question, you know, why would people want to take this on and be subject to all the things they have to be subject to as a volunteer who's just there to try to help your community?
1: points taken and i appreciate the time it's uh, you know it's one thing to deal with the storm itself but the aftermath also comes with plenty of complications and plenty of heartaches for those involved on all fronts i appreciate the time this morning thank you patty take care brian or mayor button right, pardon bye me bye. okay bye-bye uh yeah lots there uh before we get to the break let's go to line number force Say good morning to the director of golf out at the wilds that's jeremy revando okay and good morning jeremy you're on the air
11: Good morning, Patty. How's your day going?
1: So far, decent. How about yours?
11: Pretty good. Pretty good. good. A bit of a bit of a wet one on the golf course today, though. Yeah, it is that. Just wanted to uh, call and uh, chat golf and uh, speak to one of uh, one of the events we got coming up. The Wilds Open in a couple weeks here. Um, Generally, our, our biggest event of the year, open to uh, all golfers. Um, it's uh, teams of two uh, men or ladies, and uh, like I said open to anyone. It's on Saturday, September twenty third, and Sunday, September twenty fourth. And uh, we've got registration for that going online. So, just wanted to t- chat about that event and uh, put it out there as we uh, as we look to fill up uh, fill up the event. It's about halfway full right now.
1: One thing that's cool about the Wilds Open is simply the format.
11: Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know it's it's a slight change with the format this year, but um, we've seen a lot of this, and the, the formats. Uh becoming known as a six, 6 6 format. And so what you've got is uh, six holes of scramble. Um, a lot of people, a lot of golfers call that a best ball. A scramble really is when you both hit your shots and go select the best one, hit from there and, and repeat that throughout the hole. Um, so we'll have six holes of scramble. Six holes of best ball simply means you and your partner both hole out your own golf shots on the hole. Yeah. And you count your low score between the two of you. So we'll have six holes of the best ball. And then the most fun format, just because no one ever gets to play alternate shots um, six holes of alternate shot, but it is a select tee shot. So you both hit your tee shot, and then you select the best one, and then alternate from there. And uh, having a partner—that's that's what we find is just why people love the uh, format—is because no one ever gets a chance to play an alternate shot. You watch it in the Ryder Cup, uh, which I'm pretty excited about coming up in a at the end of the month. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a really fun format. We're seeing a lot of clubs adopt it across the country, and uh, and I think it'll be a, a great format for for
1: players i that's exactly what i was going to say they'll get a uh, chance to see the best players in the world do it at the uh, Guiadona, monticello marco simone golf course just outside of rome with the Ryder cup which is actually the following weekend 29th of uh, friday september 29th through sunday the first one of the best sporting events on the calendar year well i guess every two years uh so yeah uh, exactly yeah I, I can't wait personally uh what do you think of the the alternates that were named justin thomas how did that happen
11: yeah, you know what? I, the one thing I've been – I listen to a lot of podcasts and uh, I've been getting a lot of uh, – reading a lot of articles on that. And I'm not surprised at the end of the day. And what I'm—what no one's saying is uh, Ian Poulter really never got questioned as a pick. Um, Poulter never necessarily had his best, but they knew he was made for the Ryder Cup. And they they just want to believe that Justin Thomas is the same way. His golf game, uh, obviously, he's uh, struggled this year. But his, uh, his passion and what he brings to the team, and we really saw it at the President's Cup um, – as well when he was with Tiger Woods and I just think it's its just one of those picks where the team is not the team necessarily without Justin Thomas
1: and fair enough and there's
11: such a part there
1: yeah he does wear the red white and blue very very well as does Poulter I mean until Poulter is given up he'll always be a pick I mean because it's undeniable he's been outside of Colin Montgomery the best Ryder Cupper ever coming from the other side yeah. of the pond uh, it's good to have you on the show give the folks the Deets one more time if they want to participate in the Wilds Open
11: yeah, so sign up, it's uh, $220 a player, two player teams, men or women. Um, you can go to the, the Wilds website, uh, thewilds.ca, sign up online through the golf tab. There's a tournament registration. Uh, we've got space for 20 more teams. We're going to have tea times on Saturday, so everyone's going to play uh, between 11 and, and 2 or so. Following that, we're going to have a buffet dinner uh, open to all the players, and then we're going to have uh, Paul Brace uh, playing some music here at the hotel on Saturday night from uh, 8, to, uh, 8 to 11 or so. And then Sunday morning, we're going to have an 8 30 shotgun to get everyone out there um 8 everyone tee off at the same time finish up around one o'clock and, and be on their way for sunday afternoon so uh, a quick little event it also includes a practice round so i feel like for 220 a player it's the same price it's been the last couple of years and uh just want to have a, a fun uh, fun day 36 holes of golf and like i said if you want to play the practice round on friday there's a third round thrown in there and uh looking forward to a great event
1: and you call it the 666 format. If you don't have the T ball under control, it's a devilish day at the Wilds. I can attest <laughs> yeah. to that. Good to have you on, Jeremy. Good luck with it, buddy.
11: Thanks so much, Patty. Take
1: Check care. Soon. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Jeremy Rivando, director of golf at the Wilds. And he mentioned Paul Brace. I just exchanged notes with Paul Brace this morning. He's got a new single out there: Getting Through But Getting High. Paul's a good guy. All right, uh, break time. When we come back, you say right there to talk about the government use of consultants, a home insurance question. Then what's really important, given what we might experience throughout the month of September, emergency management planning. Then we're going to talk some wind, hydrogen, ammonia proposal stuff. Don't go away.
0: Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30
1: to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly He's serving the folks at Mount Pearl and South Lance. That's Paul Lang. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air.
3: Yes, good morning, Patty. Um... Teddy, uh I guess I was inspired to call this morning after listening uh, to your conversation with, uh, I guess, your former colleague Jonathan Richler um, uh, around the whole aspect of uh, government consultants. And um, this is something that uh, certainly uh, I've spoken to you about in the past in various iterations, whether it be as a stand, whether it be a standalone topic or as part of a more broader conversation around. Uh, uh, democratic reform and, uh, and, and, um, you know, uh, around donations to political parties and so on. Um, so there's a number of angles, I guess we can come at from it, but, um, I just want to say that I, I certainly do agree and have felt for a long time, um, and, and question quite frankly, the use of consultants, uh, by government. Uh, I've often wondered aloud, Um, you know, was it necessary? I can understand that there may be, you know, certain times when there could be some specific area that requires some, you know, specific expertise that, you know, may not be readily available in government where you may have to bring in a consultant because for something very, very narrow and very specific. But uh, it seems that uh, what tends to happen, and that's not tying this to this administration or any politi- or any political party, because uh, 'cause we've seen it over the years. But it seems like whenever any kind of a topic comes up uh and uh you know uh, in the public and particularly if there's any kind of public pressure occurring um, you know, where people are looking for government to act in a certain way um and to take action on something, it seems like one of the automatic go to's is, oh, we'll hire a consultant and do a study. And of course that certainly I guess in the short term uh gives the impression uh or tries to give the impression that we hear yeah we're listening and we're taking some form of action. Now, of course, quite often, once a consultant is hired, uh, there is a period of time it takes for that to actually happen for a report, uh, you know, for the study to be done, whatever that study is, for a report to be issued. And after it's all said and done and a report gets issued, you'll always hear the minister, uh, hear the government say the minister or the government is Accepting, they've accepted recommendations. It doesn't say they're going to implement them, just says we've accepted the report, which basically means we've paid for a report and now we're just going to take it from you with no guarantee and generally no follow up and accountability to the fact of, well, okay, you've just paid thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands, whatever the case might be, uh, on a study. From a consultant with no, n- not necessarily any follow up as to, well, uh, are you going to implement these recommendations? And when are you going to implement these recommendations? So, what will happen is a little press release will come out. Uh, um, perhaps they'll say, We've received the consultant's report. We're reviewing it uh, with the view of, uh, you know, seeing where from here. Of course, Then it goes away. Generally speaking, we don't get necessarily any follow-up by the media or anybody else, and it kind of gets forgotten about until two or three years or three or four years down the road when the same issues that led to that report being issued to begin with arise again, more public pressure is put on, and then we do yet another consultant's report to tell us the same thing that the original report told us already. And um, quite frankly, I would argue it's a total waste of taxpayers' money in, in many cases. And I would also argue that much of the work that's being done by these consultants, in my view, unless it's something very, very narrow and specific, could be and should be done by the public servants, which we are paying you know huge dollars uh, on, on salaries to do, but that never seems to happen either. So it seems like a delay tactic, a way of kicking things down the road. I don't think it's necessarily in the public interest.
1: No, well, I mean 99% of the time I don't think it is. The two most recent that irritate me, because we brought together some of the big minds for the Premier's Economic Recovery Team and the eventual Green Report and that came at a pretty minimal cost. Okay, those things can be very beneficial, but the two that absolutely I think are ridiculous, uh, the McKinsey & Co, a dubious company to begin with for an economic path forward and then rothschild and which we can't even get a look at so those are are two pretty great examples it's it's our money so the mckinsey was a million bucks and it took forever to get it in hand but the rothschild report costs much more than that and i mean rothschild are also a a, a company people have questions about but they're talking about some of the biggest issues on the economic table for the province to deal with we don't know if they're going to accept or reject any of it because they won't tell us what's in it
3: Exactly. And I can give you, and I'll just give you another example of, uh, of another report, um, or su- allegedly another report anyway. Uh, when we were in the House Assembly, I can't remember if it was the spring or last fall now, I'll be honest with you. But anyway, in, within the last year, when they collapsed, when, when they decided, the government decided we're going to scrap the school board and bring the school board into the Department of Education and there was legislation that had to be passed to allow that to happen. So when that was happening and we were debating it in the House Assembly and I wasn't really sure which way I was going to go on it because you know uh, you know I was hoping that obviously if they were going to do this it was going to be done for the right reasons and based on the best kind of you know the best available information as to why this was the right thing to do. So I questioned it in the House Assembly and I was told in the House Assembly that they were basing the decision to to collapse the school boards was based on a consultant's recommendations. And I said, okay, great. Can I see these consultant's recommendations? I'd like to see this consultant's report and the recommendations to understand why they have determined that this is the right thing to do and the best thing to do. So I know that before I decide how I vote on this in the House Assembly. And I was told, no, it's a cabinet document. You can't see it. So, you know, here we are, you know, again, spending taxpayers' money, allegedly, on consultant's report, recommendations there, going to change legislation based on recommendations, and I'm expected to vote on it at the time, And but I can't see the recommendations, I can't even see the report that we paid for, which is why I voted, ultimately I voted against it happening for that reason. Of course, government has majority, it, and it happened anyway. But I, I voted against it because it, I said, "There's no way I'm going to vote for something based on recommendations." You're not even going to let me see. I mean, this is ludicrous. But it's another example of a waste, as far as I'm concerned, of taxpayers' money and and consultants not being used uh, in the right way. And and again, you know, I have to go back to the fact that we have tons of staff. Uh, Some people would argue top-heavy, you know, and that's a matter of opinion, I guess. But, um, you know, we have an awful lot of people working for the provincial government. And and the ones that I've dealt with primarily have been great workers, very knowledgeable and so on. So I'm not doubting their abilities. I'm not saying that they're saying we don't want to do the work. Perhaps they're not being given the opportunity to do the work. But it seems to me that an awful lot of these consultants' reports that are basically end up collecting dust on a shelf somewhere... Uh, could have been done by people who were actually working for the government. We did not need to go hiring consultants. And then that, of course, brings us into this other no. aspect of democratic reform and campaign finance reform, where some people might say, well, you know, uh, whether it's real or perceived, this sense that uh, we've got to use, that government use these consultants to pay back uh, you know, as, as a, I scratch your back, you scratch fine when it comes to uh, Sure,
1: kind of but music. many of those oh, companies. or
3: yeah, or. Yeah.
1: but those companies—they'll write a check to whoever's in government. I mean, that, <laughs> you yeah, know, oh, so there are no—they don't have okay. Business. I got to get to the break. I'll give you the last word. Uh,
3: no, Patty. I mean, that's basically all I wanted to say. Uh, you know, uh, again, um you know, it's taxpayers' money we're, we're talking about here, and uh, uh, you know, again, there may be times when there are specific expertise. And if that's required, fair enough. But it, we're bearing that, we should not be using consultants. And if we are going to use them, then we should be able to see the reports, see the recommendations. And there should be a mechanism for follow-up so that, you know, whether it means taking uh, recommendations and putting them online for the world to see. and for the government to be required to update as to what they're implementing, what they have, and if they're deciding we're not going to implement it, tell us why you're not going to implement it. If you are going to implement it, why is it taking so long? Having it out in front in the public so that people can follow up and ask questions as opposed to doing one release saying, yeah, we've received this report, we're going to consider it, and then all of a sudden... It goes away. Nobody talks about it, and we forget about it until the next crisis happens. Then we'll hire another consultant to do this work all over again.
1: Appreciate the time. Thanks, Paul.
3: Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Have a great-
1: Bye-bye. Paul Lane, uh, independent member of Mount Pearl Southlands. Just before we get to the break, I told I'd do this on behalf of a listener. Uh, her son, a young fellow named Danny, Danny Brinson, actually lost his wallet. He took a Metro bus ride to the Memorial University campus. Noticed the wallet was gone after he arrived. They haven't ha- had any luck with campus. They haven't had any luck with Metro bus. There was a bunch of uh, ID stuff in there, bank card, driver's license, MCP, bus pass, no cash. So if you picked it up, can you please reunite Danny with these wallets? his number is 873-5735 last wallet danny brinson 873-5735 let's take a break when we come back george has a home in home insurance issue because of what a fire hydrant okay don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two good morning george Here on the air
12: good morning patty uh thank you for taking my call my pleasure uh Patty, I just want to make people aware of, of uh, what happened to me with my insurance because I, I think there may be a lot of people out there in my mind getting ripped off. Uh, when I went to renew my insurance back in June, when I read my policy, it said that uh, I was in a Han protected area. Now, I, I live in a community with a fire agent right in front of my house. But apparently, uh, the insurance companies have, have hired this company. Uh, the company is based in D.C., but i got an office in Halifax. And the uh, town's supposed to submit their le- water layout, their hydrants, and everything to the insurance company. Now, when I contact my uh, town council, they said they never heard tell so it took me a few weeks to track down the company to get hold of someone in the company. When when I informed the company that my town never target this, they sent me a whole bunch of emails that they had to, that they sent the, the town back as far as 2019 to submit this plan, and it cost me an extra 222 dollars a year because uh, that plan is still not submitted and uh, my insurance tells me that there's no refund on that because it wasn't in place when I renewed my policy. And my town council is telling me that they're not responsible, so I I have to pay the $222 uh, out of my pocket because of the incompetence of, of my council. Uh, or does it rip
1: off my, my insurance company? George, just so, I want to make sure I'm understanding this what exactly is part of the unsubmitted plan that's impacting your insurance? What specifically are we referring to? Uh,
12: testing of the hydrants, uh, sort of up to par, uh, the layout of the, uh, of the hydrants in the community Okay uh, th- Now that's my understanding of what's required
1: I, What community are we talking about? Eastport Eastport you I mean I thought and I mean I've seen hydrant testing not frequently but you do see it happening is it not something that's not normal course of events for the municipality to take care of I mean what does the town say
12: no this is over and above a uh, uh, normal normal procedures okay but but I mean when I approached my town council and I mean they, they said they had no recollection of it that was the response that I got. Okay, yet the emails were sent to them back in 2019. I have a copy of all the emails that were sent. I mean, there's, uh, there's incompetence on, on my council that I'm paying paid for my uh, council bills for the last 50 years. And I mean, uh, and I mean, here I am. How many more people's out there like this that didn't didn't look at their policy? And here I am, less than a, a, a one kilometer from the fire uh, fire uh, uh, truck and and the uh, fire department building, one kilometer, and a fire hydrant sitting in front of my house that's deemed unprotected.
1: It's sort of a strange thing for an insurance company required that is over and above normal course of action for a community, whether it be the city of St. John's or the town of Eastport. So, like, I I don't think that's in my insurance policy, for instance. And I do have a hydro rate outside of my home as well. And I would have to look, but I don't think that's ever even mentioned in my policy. Uh,
12: it's uh, it's not mentioned in my in policy. It's just... All it says that I'm unprotected. Okay. And the reason I'm unprotected is because the town hasn't submitted their their uh, their plan. And John's may have their plan submitted. Quite possibly, and
1: maybe that's why it's not an issue for me. Uh, Dave, let's see if someone uh, belongs to the council out in Eastport can talk us to this, because if it's an issue for George, it's got to be an issue for everyone in the community. I mean, if they don't have a town plan submitted, I don't imagine that would have an impact on one, but an impact on all, possibly. So, George, we'll see if we can get him on the show to talk about it.
12: I requested a meeting with the mayor, and they refused to. To the mayor refused to meet with me. Now they did offer me, which I got the right to anyhow, to attend the council meeting. Okay. I uh, I got to say that, but they they flatly refused. There's no point having a meeting with the with the town manager and the mayor. They flatly refused to meet with me.
1: And they might refuse my invitation or our invitation, but we'll try anyway.
12: Yeah. I just wanted to get this on the airways because I believe that there's other people out there that does does not look at their policy, and and because uh, you, your policy is either says you're protected or unprotected, and and uh, I say there's a lot of people in that community that have renewed their policy and uh, and never even never even noticed it, and maybe in a lot of other communities as well.
1: Quite possibly, and very likely. I'm glad you uh, brought it to our attention here this morning. I think people are probably going to go to the drawer or to their safe or whatever the case may be and have a look at their policy now, just like I'm going to have to. But we will try to see if we can get uh, some reaction from the town of Eastport and their council. I appreciate the time this morning, George.
12: Patty, one last thing. Sure. uh, uh, One last comment. I think it's very unfair that the individual – out there got to bear the burden of 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 uh, of something that the council uh failed to uh overlooked or failed to do uh and costing taxpayers of that community extra money i think it's very really unfair to the taxpayer of that community and if if uh if insurance policies, if they're doing it for one community, I would like to know are they doing it for every single community. That's 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 what I like to know.
1: Yeah, I'd like to know too. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, have a nice weekend, George. Thanks a lot.
12: You too. Thank Take you. care.
1: All right, bye bye. That's an interesting one. Uh, okay, uh, <laughs> on behalf of a listener, one more time, and this is a bit of an odd one, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. If you live in and around St. John's, where can you buy? The best lemon poppy seed loaf. That's the question of the day here on Open Line. Profound, deep, importance. Let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of all hands in the queue. We'll get back to you right after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday
0: afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number five, say good morning to Dr. Francis Scully. Good morning, Dr. Scully. You're on the air.
13: Good morning, Patty. Hi. Hi
1: good there. Me. Can you pick up the receiver, take us off speaker so we can hear you clearly, please?
13: Sorry, can you hear me now?
1: Uh, it's not great, but I can hear you. Go ahead.
13: Can you hear me now?
1: It's decent. Call right ahead.
13: Oh, sorry about that. No problem. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for all your work, and I really enjoyed listening to all the people who called in today. And um, I was just going to mention, uh, I had tried to call last week, um, I listened to uh, Helen Forsey, who's another member of the Avalon chapter of the Council for Canadians, who was chatting to you about the... Uh, project being planned for possibly planned or under review for the port of port uh, Peninsula. And I wanted to add a couple of thoughts. One is that this is another mega project, massive. And I think we do need to digest what we learned from the Muskrat Falls inquiry and apply it uh, before we start any more massive projects um because um yeah uh, in general i think uh many people are arguing away from massive projects because um of the difficulties in coordinating so many different lines of uh, investigations etc also um this particular area I don't know at all. I'm just reading about it, trying to learn about it. But my understanding is that the port port Peninsula is a vast, um, you know, uh, ethnic, cultural uh, and geographic significance to many people and a beautiful area and pristine. So uh, why exactly uh, it would be a good idea to destroy a beautiful area to build a massive Industrial complex, um, sort of like what happened in the Ruhr Valley, uh, now when we are trying to move away from massive industrialization and massive chemical pollution, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And it certainly does not seem to go with anything, I'm not an expert, but anything I read about community development says that, uh, you know, ideas should come from the local community, not from pressure from an external uh, uh, group. Uh, That's one of the red flags. Uh, But another is that um, there's now a group called Earth for All, which is uh, made up of uh, a a large group um, originating in northern Europe in the Scandinavian countries and northern Germany. But they have links all over the world which are looking at how we uh, assess the interactions between business proposals and the environment. Um, and they've they Earth they've developed an Earth for All platform. And starting in 2009, they have been working on a concept of nine planetary boundaries. And I know this is very difficult. Uh, I mean, I'm really struggling to read and, and understand it myself, but climate change our climate emergency we're all very conscious of now because it's impossible not to be with these horrible fires and everything but uh exceeding the climate change boundary unfortunately is only one of nine essential planetary boundaries and another very important planetary boundary is keeping the balance between nitrogen and phosphorus and uh, that's an extremely complicated process that I cannot pretend to understand, but my understanding is that one of the major contributions to the imbalance is the use of um, ammonia and, or nitrate-based fertilizers, and again, that's another huge controversy, and I don't.
1: Let's try to take these one, either, the, one at a time, just a yeah, little bit. Sorry. So, yeah, muskrat falls, to me, they're two different animals. We were the people who are instigated, informed, managed, and are the customer for any power coming from Musgraff Falls. The. Issue with wind, wind, uh, hydrogen, ammonia is different because we won't be intimately or directly involved other than being the workforce and collecting some taxes and royalties and the like. So for me, those two separates, like I'm not the customer, I'm not involved, my federal tax dollars will be, but we don't have a managed say for instance, by Crown Corporation. So does that not make it different in some form, if not in full, from Muskrat?
13: No, because the, the major issue is how we look at land and our environment and whether or not humans can be extracted for the environment. And we can't, actually, actually. So, you know, our health, your health, my health, your children's health, my children's health, the health of every future child for the next seven generations depends on the decisions we make now with regards to our environment. Our whole planet is is really in danger because we're close to... We've exceeded a number of these planetary boundaries, which means we. What we're doing now is potentially putting life on our planet, making our planet uninhabitable for future generations. So we ha- we have to think about that, and it is total. And it's not totally different because it's the scale that I'm talking about here. Scale. Moskridge Falls was enormous, vast, and a vast amount of resources were put into it. And. Um, And these plans are massive. They're massive. Plus, it's plus the people. You, you and I may not live on the Port of Port Peninsula, but but there are people living there. And the uh, from what I can read and from all the discussions you have, you know, with people all morning, people know a lot about their local communities. I don't pretend to, but but people know a lot about. And the best decisions are made by people who care about these communities and know about these communities not some external massive corporation who happens to choose that community because they think they're going to make some more profits plus our tax dollars do convince this because mr risley is looking for a tax break on this from the federal government oh i already said i I did say that
1: i've acknowledged that
13: okay sorry i apologize
1: so with the climate related matters isn't part of this proposal and the thirst for different or alternative forms of energy because you mentioned scandinavia and northern germany which are homes to wind farms the difference here is utilizing wind generated power in form of electrolysis to make the separation and, and ship it in, in the medium that would be ammonia So, isn't the, also the additional thought here is that countries individuals communities they want different sources of power versus Coal or you know any fossil fuel-driven propulsion or uh, generation. So isn't that also part of it, that we're trying to satisfy environmental concerns at the same time? Because wind is not new; it's new to us, but it's not new. And the only real absolutely new part petty. here.
13: Absolutely, absolutely, Paddy. And uh, again, I'm not an expert on all this. We could get people on who are. But you know, um, one of the other members of the Avalon Council, in Maryland, was tr- traveling recently in Greece, and there are windmills, there are wind powers everywhere, but they're small. And the whole idea is that you use them for local energy um, production. It, it, you're not putting in massive, 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 um, you know, the big, they, they want to build the biggest wind farm ever. Such a wind farm has not yet been developed anywhere on our planet. And they want to use turbines that were designed to be used in the Atlantic were not designed to be used on land and that may have designed for flaws and we 're talking you I listened to that mayor in Port Basque and what they 're dealing with, and i 'm just thinking you know of the catastrophes that could happen with the building of this these massive turbines if it's just one of those uh, you know one of those um, leaves of the turbine. Um, if something happens to it and blows away, it will do tremendous damage. Tremendous damage. So, so it's the scale we're talking about. Scale. The wind energy is looking very promising. We should be investing in it. Absolutely. But the whole idea for us, I understand, and I have very limited knowledge and skill, is that, that you choose your lo- you, what, what we're supposed to be doing is we're, A, lo- dealing with inequality so that decisions are made and the people who live in the area and the people directly involved by any decisions uh, have as much input as possible. And that's why I completely support the members of the Environment Environmental Transparency Committee and those people who actually know the area and really know what's involved and want to hear what they have to say. And 50 days is not nearly enough time to listen to everything. So the first thing is that the – so what is recommended by Earth for All is that we first deal with massive inequality and poverty because when we have rule by the rich for the rich, it just really doesn't work out for the rest of us, and it never has so that's the first first point the next point that is made by them is gender equality which is not relevant here and the other one is that the most important thing is healthy food production locally and there's a lot of debate about whether using nitrates and industrialization industrialization of farming is healthy for either people or the planet uh, so there's a whole big debate about that but, but last on their list is how is energy transformation and for sure everybody's talking and it's very technical and I'm really glad that um this gentleman, Mr. Fagan, who knows a lot about it, is going to be, you know, involved. I understand th- th- it's very technical, and I don't understand how you connect all the grids and so on, and it's very important. But but uh, th- there are a lot of people who do know a lot about it. Um, there's, uh, I think it's Nick Mercer. I listened to his talk, and he was, you know, he's doing a PhD in the area. I mean, it would be worth hearing what he has to say. But wind energy, yes, is the way to go, but not 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 in this form it's not not you know this this is just using semantics they are only building the huge wind energy uh, as an excuse for producing the uh the ammonia for export and for sure there's profit right now in ammonia i looked that up and there's loads of money being made by it but it is not helping uh, the planet and there's nothing remotely green about it so uh, this is this is a pro- for-profit venture that people are interested in, yeah. and it's not because of uh, we want to live within planetary boundaries.
1: Well, there's no such thing as green energy. We might as well get that out of the way. There's everything comes at a cost, regardless. You know, even if it's solar, well, you have to build a panel. That comes at a cost. Whether it be transitioning with hydrogen or natural gas or whatever, everything comes with some form of cost. There's greener energies, but there is no such thing as pure green. Hydro is not pure green, it comes with environmental cost. So when people lean on that, then, you know, that's just gender-driven kind of commentary because everything comes with some sort of environmental impact, some sort of societal impact. There's plenty of options out there that are better than some of the sources we've used for centuries, but... You know, th- I, I don't know what we're going to do here with this wind. And it's easy enough for someone living in St. John's to not be uh, focused solely in on the size of the turbines and the footprint on the Port-au-Port Port Peninsula. But again, if we're ever going to use alternative forms of energy, regardless of where they're stationed, solar panel farms, wind farms, tidal capture energy, whatever it is, somebody somewhere is going to not want to close by where they live. Th- and that's just been the nature of the beast, regardless of what we're talking about. Uh, and I'm not...
13: Handy, there are lots of places. Okay, very, places very quickly, I do have to...
1: Go. I'll no, let you wrap it up
13: yeah not not massive ones right like all over Greece they are using wind energy people are using wind energy mm-hmm. but they're not destroying the entire environment they're, we're not talking about you this is not about using wind energy this is about mm-hmm. building a chemical a chemical industrial complex this is what this is about it is not about using wind energy well, it's uh, just the the thing.
1: N- 90% of energy the concern we hear is about the presence of the turbines not the ammonia plant
13: but the, whole, I, the only reason that they're using these massive, massive industrial, yes, I know, but dangerous big. things to, to, to make is, is to pretend that this is a green project and to gain from some um, tax, tax rebates. That's why it's called that. Okay. It's all about producing ammonia, and it is possible that ammonia may be the only fuel that, that will work for um, marine transportation and so on. That's that's what I'm reading. Apparently, I mean, it is. And I'm not an expert, but but okay. that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about selling the uh, the ammonia, which and ammonia itself is highly highly toxic. Uh, so, so, okay. anyway, so, so anyway, so thank you very much. I appreciate
1: the time. Take good care. Have a nice weekend. Thank
13: you. All right. You too. Thank okay. you. Bye bye. bye.
1: Uh, when we come back, Michelle, you're there next. Talk about emergency management. Then we're going to talk about you know some of the announcements and the comments coming from the province about basically all in on aquaculture that's not new and the industry has had to rebound based on you know pandemic supply related matters and or massive die-offs whatnot the executive director of the newfoundland aquaculture industry association is jamie baker He's also in the queue don't go away welcome back to the show let us go line number three good morning michelle you're on the air
14: hi patty happy friday
1: happy friday to you too and i appreciate your patience what's on your mind no
14: I'm actually calling regarding emergency management planning at the local level.
12: Okay.
14: Um, in my quest to become emergency prepared, I feel that I'm, adequate, I'm prepared on a personal level. I feel like the government information on their website. But what I'm finding on the municipal level, there are a lot of gray areas. Um, there's a lack of emergency services information. Um, so, in my research and trying to find out more information on municipal websites, what I've noticed is it's impossible to, fl- uh, to find flood maps. You cannot find a flood map. Um, what you get if you call a community is to co- contact the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, which has a listing of all, um, I guess, prior um, studies done on flooding. Um, So that one was um, strange because that's one thing that you need to know are your flood maps. Um, Another thing that they don't highlight on their websites is, um, and I'm saying most municipalities because I did a lot of searches and around the metro area, as well as rural Newfoundland. um, And there's limited information on evacuation centers, how they're going to communicate with people with special needs, like with hearing, visually impaired, citizens with language barriers, as well as where do you shelter and evacuate animals? Like simple things like this, which is, you know, I know, I think the municipalities were mandated to have an emergency management plan in place since 2008. What I'm finding is the communication and the education on the local level is just not there.
1: Wouldn't some of those things be based on scope and scale of whatever weather event or disaster people are facing? Because it's one thing to have a wind event versus Fiona versus a fire versus uh, other types of disasters. So wouldn't that make, you know, there's no way to have that black and white. This is how it works no matter what because it could be mm-hmm. vastly different well, scope and scale. I do
14: believe that precipitation in the province is going to increase as the years go on as well as we've had fires and we get wind and now we've just recently saw that nova scotia you know there's flash flooding so these are all things that we're going to have to deal with in the future and i much rather be proactive on the municipal level than you know reactive because for me um i just find that i wouldn't have much idea how to evacuate if chance, we had to have a flash flood. I wouldn't know where the evacuation zones were to. I wouldn't be familiar with what, and I know a lot of this would come with, I guess, communication during the emergency, but as of now, I don't know the social media platforms being used. Um, I don't know if there's a neighborhood safety plan, which I know in a number of municipalities, they find it helpful to have block buddies, so you know in your area who is vulnerable and how you can help. So... With, we know climate change is coming, and I feel like better education and better communication is required by municipalities. And, I, and it's not just my municipality, because I ask some of my friends, do you know where your flood zone is? Do you know how, to, how you would go about evacuating? Nobody knows. So there's a problem with communication. And I don't know, it's funny, when I was in my quest to find information, I ended up landing on a community in the United States with the same name. And what they, and of course, the United States has been dealing with these um, emergencies for years, um, and they pretty well have it down to a science. But what they found was engaging the community and the planning process was very important. Um, That way the community understands the threats and hazards. And they're actually a part of the planning process. And socializing and exercising the evacuation plan, these are things that haven't been done. And, you know, at that, I mean, this community had a fire that spread as fast as the length of 80 football fields per second. So at times. So they contributed their previous preparedness in socializing and testing the evacuation plan very important and the community properly evacuated because of that and they knew there were predetermined evacuation zones. Now this may all sound a bit out there for us but this is the way we have to prepare now and I don't know if I I was surprised to learn that Newfoundland had a hurricane back in 1775 that killed 4,000 people and had waves as high as 30 feet. Now would we be prepared for that now? I don't think so.
1: (laughs) A hurricane in this province that killed 4,000 people?
14: That was in 1775.
1: Huh?
14: Yep. It was a in Newfoundland, Newfoundland hurricane. Read this on the weather network. Net weather network. Okay. And yeah, the tides and waves were 30 feet high. So I don't think that many citizens would know what to do for an evacuation process on that scale.
1: Well, the point is well taken. I mean, the government's all levels will encourage me to be prepared for potential emergencies as recently as yesterday when they talked about the new provincial website that is launched, but you can't see it yet, which is is interesting. So, fair. They're telling me to be prepared. I would imagine I'm going to have to rely on my municipality and the province if and when there's something that requires me to evacuate, whether it be for whatever, a flash flood, a wind event, a rain event, whatever, a wildfire, whatever the case may be, so... um, uh, point taken. Uh, final thoughts to you, Michelle, before I have to get to the news break.
14: Mm-hmm. Well, I just feel that one other thing I wanted to say here, cell phone service is a, it's a major for rural Newfoundland. It's a safety risk not having it. And when the auditor, federal auditor general was here, she indicated that Newfoundland had the worst rural uh, cell phone service in the country.
12: Mm-hmm.
14: So, And she indicated also it's no longer a luxury. It's a basic essential service. And I think that rural Newfoundland not having this service puts themselves at risk if we were to have a major uh, weather event.
1: I appreciate the call, Michelle. Thanks for this. All right. Thank you. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break for the news. When we come back, Jimmy Baker, who's the executive director of the Newfoundland Aquaculture Industry Association, is next, and then you. Don't go away.
0: Your voice in Newfoundland
1: and Labrador's
0: biggest conversation.
2: If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day.
0: Have your say weekday morning, starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM
1: welcome back to the show as advertised join us online number eight is the executive director of the newfoundland aquaculture industry association that's jamie baker good morning jamie you're on the air good morning sir how are you doing this morning too bad thanks for asking how about you
11: Oh, good.
15: Very exhausted, obviously, after a very busy week. I always joked at this time of year, if I was Santa Claus, it'd be like Christmas Eve, so very busy, but also very rewarding uh, to go through that process. Um, I understand that there were a couple of things that, uh, you know, that were discussed on, on the show this week, and I certainly wanted to be able to put some context around some of that. I think, first of all, one of the things that uh, was discussed was the alternate species announcement that the province made at the opening of the conference earlier this week. And just so people understand what that's all about, that's a $500,000 funding arrangement that goes over the course of three years so that's five hundred thousand each year for three years now three hundred and fifty thousand dollars of that money each year will be targeted towards oceanographic work to support regulation and science uh, which we fully support of course and the remaining hundred and fifty thousand per year over three years is going to be used to kind of help develop some species outside of our traditional mainstays obviously we're having success growing salmon trout and mussels uh, this money will be targeted towards things like for example seaweed farming uh, had a chance chance to catch up with some of the proponents that are engaged in that activity uh, in the test phase at this point and there's certainly some exciting potential and developments there and hopefully we'll start to move towards a bit more commercial phase going forward. Um, Other species would include things like wolf fish for example which uh, would be an interesting commercial product uh, once in place and of course there's still great potential for cleaner fish to supply local farms as a service supply product. Um, In terms of alternative species, I would certainly point to oysters as being a great example of a success story in that regard. Back in 2019, when we actually had our last conference, uh, before of course COVID put us on the shelf for a couple of years, uh, we were talking about oysters, it was just a discussion point. Uh, But today we have four different brands of oysters coming out of this province that are being sought out by restaurant chains in Canada and the US, and we have demand for that products that is going to only grow, so we're going to have to look to increase supply going forward. So that's the alternate species stuff. Uh, Uh, exciting development uh, for some of those people who are engaged in that activity Uh, on the idea of being all in I think it's important to understand that the current minister he he understands this farming sector because it happens right where he lives so he knows what's going on he understands the benefits he understands the positive impacts At the same time, if anybody thinks there's going to be a Wild West approach to what we're doing, I mean, that's just not accurate whatsoever. We have a really strong regulatory regime in this province, probably strong or stronger than any farming sector on the planet. Let's pick
1: pick some of this apart, Jamie, before we get too far afield. So inside the world of expansion, R&D funds, I mean, that all makes sense. But when when we talk about seaweed, wolfish, sea urchins and the like, oysters, mussels, all fairly innocuous because they don't bring the concerns that we would have necessarily with fin fish farming right
15: well yeah well it depends on species and how you go about it right i mean every species is farmed differently so i think this is a good opportunity to kind of look at how you go through those processes and come out the other side with a successful product that you can grow reasonably well so that's what it's really about
1: okay and the characterization of all and do you think that's unfair or over the top or how do you characterize because i've said this uh, many times
15: yeah I think probably it 's important to understand that while the province is supportive of the sector very clearly that doesn 't mean that they 're going to be trading in their regulatory control uh, to support us i mean they 've been very clear with us, Patty, that they intend to enforce the regulations and policies for the sector to the letter of the law and to be honest, we welcome that the feds have done that also it 's not because it 's not certainly not because our producers need all that extra work but it 's because we we honestly want the public to feel comfortable and understand that the sector is very well regulated and managed there 's nobody in this sector. Trading the environment for jobs, that's just not a thing we're uh, we're about at all. We want to see both the environment and communities benefit from what we're doing, and the amount of money being invested in that is absolutely off the charts. We're talking tens of millions of dollars being invested into this stuff. So we want to be good citizens. The people who do this work, Patty, live right there where this farming activity is happening, and they want to make sure that there's a good balance between benefits for people and benefits for the environment.
1: The uh, Of course, where people are working where they live in this industry, and I'm not suggesting there's a straight-up willful trade-off of environmental and regulatory concerns simply for jobs in an expanded tax base. I, I've never said that, so I, I, nor do I think it. But what we've seen are some examples in other jurisdictions in the world where they're moving away from open bay for fish farming, especially when we talk fin fish, and moving some of these operations onshore, not to the extent that some opponents would like to see. And then even on the west coast of Canada, not even allowed to do it so there's obviously some concerns in some corners and we've seen things in this province which give people pause for concern let's get down to some of those disease outbreaks we're told the industry is doing better there how so what's changed
15: Well, I think, first of all, I want to address the first point that you raised, and that's the idea of removing uh, farming in other sectors. I think in particular, B.C. has been mentioned. I think it's very important for people to understand that this is not an approach where B.C. gets one thing and we get another. What's really important to remember is that the decisions being made in B.C., Patty, are not based – they're not based on science at all. It's based on pure politics. And if you look at – the evidence that's there first of all when this decision was previously announced by a minister a previous minister a federal court judge heard a judicial review on all this and she set aside the department's order stating that the government hadn't followed an appropriate process in making the call to remove farms the judge also agreed with the science that was put forward including nine different studies that showed minimal at best risk to wild salmon and then following that this is an important piece as well uh, in May of last year, go look, in, go look at the Globe and Mail's archive and you'll see a letter, a collective letter from the Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat. That's the scientists that advised government. They were so concerned about the misleading activist science claims that were coming out of B.C. that they collectively published that letter stating unequivocally that despite activist claims, there was no evidence whatsoever to support the health of wild fish stocks uh, would be harmed by farming activity. So there's no unbiased actual science that says that's the case. And you know how B.C. is is. It's a different world politically than it is here. And if it wasn't, well, try and kill a seal in Newfoundland. That's one thing. Go try and do it in BC, and that's entirely another. Uh, understand. Really similar sort of situation, right? Understand. Point yeah. taken.
1: But, I mean, when we've seen the escapes, which we have seen, it's just undeniable, not because I say so, because the companies have actually reported some pretty significant escapes. The interaction that is, I don't know if it can be how documented we can make these things regarding scientific sureties, but when wild fish... are are interacting with fin fish that are farmed, then isn't that a concern that is relevant and reasonable because the escapes have happened. We've seen the pictures. yeah,
15: indeed. and But our first role in that was to start to limit those escapes. Yep. And, again, public reporting, this is not me telling you what I feel like or my opinion. You go look at public reporting. We have not had a significant at-sea escape since, I think it's 2016 or 2017. We've had very limited in the last two years. I think there's a half a dozen fish on account of in the past two years. So what's happened is the companies have invested in all sorts of different technology, including the steel cornets that prevent predators from getting through, and they've updated all their handling practices and to make sure that we don't have any problems with any of that. Now, that's not to say it won't ever happen, Patty. I mean, your family was engaged in livestock farming at some point, I'm sure, or certainly you knew someone who was. Occasionally, a chicken will get outside the fence. The thing is to make sure that as few chickens as possible get out there. The second part of that is when they do, we need to make sure that all the proper measures are in place to account for that. And we have those. We work directly with the federal government and the provincial government to make sure that there is a proper policy in place when these events happen. So the escapes are something that was high on our priority list, going back the last four or five years and we continue to spend money in that department to make sure that those are limited and we also directly support the genetic research that's being done on some of this stuff this is not something we're opposed to this is something we're contributing to and additionally we're also looking at some collaborative projects in the next few years to try and address some of this stuff so it's not it's really us trying to be good uh, contributors to the process and whatever the answers are they are and then we'll deal with them but for, in terms of escapes i think a lot of really great work has been done in the last couple of years to really limit that. Yeah, and
1: just for clarification, this is not uh, me headbutting with you. I'm just asking no, no. questions. Okay, Absolutely. then mass die offs and improvements there. We were told that the cause was warmer sea temperatures, the fish would congregate or be congested towards the bottom of the cage. And they said, well, we need deeper nets and we need aeration systems so we don't have that lack of oxygen that led to these mass die offs. We were told that was the solution, but we were told that after the first mass die-off. And then we were told that after the second mass die-off. Is that now the regulatory regime that the operations are working under? The deeper nets with the uh, aeration system so that we don't see the mass die-off?
15: Well, animal health and welfare are a primary concern for all producers, right? So, I mean, when this thing started happening, everybody kind of put their heads together and decided there has to be a better way to mitigate some of these challenges. And most of the farmers right now, they do include oxygenation mitigation. So there are measures in place that can help when oxygen levels drop or when there's issues arising from that particular field. The cages themselves are bigger. They are deeper. We have different methods that we can use to move fish through the water column so that when it gets really hot or when it gets really cold, we can get them to an appropriate place in the water column comfortably where they can actually you know kind of thrive a bit more so i mean all that stuff was a real big concern anybody who thinks a farmer wants to lose all their fish obviously that's not the case so there was a lot of time and effort put in to find different ways to mitigate some of those challenges but i'm not i mean we all know what's coming at us with climate change right so i think it's important that we we stay focused on those things because these challenges are only going to get deeper as we go forward but i think we're in a good place to help address some of those uh in the next few years for sure and God willing, we'll be able to mitigate what comes at us.
1: And my chicken that flew the coop doesn't present a, a problem for any other chicken because they're all wild chickens. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I get the point. Okay, disease management. You know, lice, ISA, what have you. I'm also told that things have changed there. I know there was talk about lumpfish to deal with sea lice and those types of things. So, what's changed to decrease or reduce the prevalence of some of the d- disease outbreaks that we have seen?
15: Well, I think it's interesting what's happened in the last couple of years. People might be surprised to learn that despite the, the warming ocean temperatures and things we've had to deal with, there has been a massive drop in pest treatments at sea because some of these other natural and more advanced methods are working really well. The lumpfish patty have done an, a terrific job uh, in terms of mitigating numbers. All of our numbers are reported online. You can go look at them, and they're really quite excellent considering the challenges we've had in terms of ocean conditions uh, in the past year in particular. So that's a lot. That's really exciting stuff. Um, um, and, you know, you're always looking for a natural method to kind of control these things. Um, and so far, that has worked out quite well. And I think it's important that uh, we be able to employ those factors going forward. I mean, we, just as an example, we had a company this summer harvest, uh, a full harvest of fish, some of the healthiest looking fish you'll ever see, and they've never had a single treatment on them, which is really quite remarkable. And it's because of the methods that have been employed outside of therapeutic or pest control use. We're using these wild, uh, these, these. Uh, these lumpfish and cleaner fish to really do a good job of controlling that, And the numbers bear that out. And again, that's not me telling you my opinion. Those numbers are all fully available publicly, and I'm happy to provide them to you at any time.
1: Sure, I appreciate it. The industry is talking about really uh, ramping up production. What's the point of view from your organization when we talk about interaction with the commercial harvester and the sheer footprint of these fish farms, whether it be in Placentia Bay or otherwise, because if we're going to have a balance between wild stock of salmon and fin fish, uh, fin uh, farmed salmon, and we're going to have a relationship between aquaculture and the commercial fishery, to grow the production means more pens. How does that relationship between the commercial fishery look because they say specifically in Placentia Bay that it's compromised their operations added additional cost for whether be fuel or steaming further afield, or simply just the presence of the nets. What do you say?
15: Well, I just say overall, first of all, in terms of expansion, this is not some kind of explosive willy-nilly year-over-year expansion that we're talking about. It's more of a steady, sustained, sort of sensible approach over the next few years to try and and build what we have. And the footprint of the industry overall is really fairly small when you consider some areas. We have a lot of available water that doesn't get used uh, for this particular type of activity, so that part bodes well. Um, And the regulators uh, are very keen to make sure that all all the steps in the process are followed. I mean, the growers understand that people have questions, and they're out there actively consulting with communities, even when it's hard to do so. They're there taking the shots, and they're explaining exactly what's happening uh, as they're moving forward. Nobody wants anybody to be uncomfortable with what we're doing, and there's no hidden agenda. They just want to be able to get out there and help explain to people what's happening. Look, I've been around fish a long, long time, and I can tell you, this is a very complicated industry, as I'm sure you well know. So I think it's important for people to get out there and kind of explain why we're expanding the way we are and how we're going about about it. It's definitely not some kind of massive, out-of-nowhere, explosive expansion that's going to happen overnight. It's gradual, it's sensible, and we want to make sure it's sustainable uh, for many years to come.
1: Really appreciate your time this morning, Jamie. Thanks a lot.
15: Always a pleasure, sir. Have a good
1: have a good weekend. You too. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye bye, Jimmy Baker, Executive Director, of Newfoundland Aquaculture Industry Association. Final break of the morning and the week. Tom, making you're next to talk about a membership drive at the Saint John's Retired Citizens Association. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air.
16: Oh, thank you, Patty. I appreciate the opportunity of uh, reaching out to your audience uh, with uh, our annual uh, membership drive. Uh, it's um, it's the St. John's Retired Citizens Association. We're located on 10 Bender Avenue. And um, we have our membership drive this coming Monday uh, from 10 to noon and from 2 to 4. Our membership fee is uh, $40. And this helps pay everything we do. Uh, We're a total uh, volunteer organization. And we offer programs, uh, many programs, rather, uh, such as guitar, guitar lessons. Uh, We offer music programs on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We offer exercise programs, all impact uh, exercise programs for seniors. We offer a bridge program, uh, bridge lessons, uh, I mentioned guitar lessons um, uh, and a multitude of other things that we do within our club. We're looking at many other programs that we want to add as the year goes by. And as I said, uh, it's an opportunity for seniors to get out of the house, to get involved. As I said, we're all volunteers to make new friends. And that's really key, you know, we're coming into our long winter months and an opportunity to get out and make new friends and and to get involved with new uh, hobbies, new programs. It's an excellent opportunity for for our seniors. We also offer on uh, Wednesday nights um, programs where we talk about, we bring in professionals to talk about uh, online scams, phone scams, uh, we talk about financial issues. We talk about uh, uh, elder abuse. We talk about anything that will impact seniors. And this is open to the general public as well. We offer this to the general public as we go. So, like I say, we have uh, our membership drive on this coming Monday.
1: How many members do you currently have, Tom?
16: We have 315.
1: And where does all the activities take place, all of the uh, events and the guitar lessons and all the rest? Where
16: are you? It all takes, all takes place on Bennett Avenue, on 10 Bennett Avenue at our club, our right behind the old Grace Hospital, which we're waiting in, in anticipation to see come down.
1: Yeah, no doubt you are. <laughs> I saw that it is. Also, inside what the Retired Citizens Association does, there's a couple of groups out there that are talking about and looking at the fact that so many retirees, whether it be that they are not enjoying all the free time or whether or not what cost a living, they need to go back to work for in some form or for so many hours per week. Do you do anything for me on that front? Because that's a real bugaboo for a lot of seniors. Is because there's the whole concept of ageism. You know, employers will be hesitant to hire maybe older employees, whether it be uh, unfounded concerns with health or training, or up to the standards and the tech and innovation that the world is moving so quickly with. So, do you do anything on that front?
16: We do. Uh, we've offered uh, several uh, classes on uh, on the use of computers, on um, how to use them, um, like to advance yourself on a computer system. We brought in professionals to do that. As I mentioned, we do uh, other programs of. Uh, you know, um, online scams and anything that would impact seniors. We've never really broached, but it might be a great idea. I've never really broached the fact of looking at seniors uh, how do you get back into the workforce? And, uh, you know, what, what, because seniors offer so much more than most people will ever realize. We have a background in so many different businesses and so many different areas, and we can offer so much expertise in everything, every business you can imagine, Patty. Everything from, uh, you know, uh, retail into IT, into finance, uh, into childcare, into every, every single avenue out there seniors have the experience and and it's really not utilized as you just said ageism is a real big issue
1: It absolutely is and I talked to another couple of people on that because that's one of their I guess maybe their primary or their sole focus inside their organization so I was just curious if it's part of the conversation with your group Uh, before we run out of time Tom if someone would like to join up how do they get involved in this particular annual membership drive
16: Uh, As I mentioned uh, this coming Monday uh, September the 11th uh, from 10 to 2, and from uh, 2 to 4, we will have uh, members of our club there, all the volunteers there, to walk anybody through. If you have any questions, any concerns, uh, the walk them through what our programs are, uh, how the time frame works, uh, and answer all questions.
1: Good to have you on the show, Tom. Good luck with the drive. Okay. Thank you very much, Patty. appreciate it. My pleasure. Take good care of yourself. Have a nice weekend. All right. There we go. Tom Making with the St. John's Retired Citizens Association. All right. Uh, just about out of time. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You are all right. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.